Welcome back to the Carpangler Chronicles podcast. This is episode number 22, which is a lucky number for some people, but unfortunately it wasn't lucky for us. We recorded a part two interview with Sean Harrison, and unfortunately some kind of voodoo happened and the audio is just not very good quality. Uh, Pete's audio is absolutely fine. Sean's is okay. Uh, my audio is just not sounding great at all. So apologies about that. It's still very listenable to. You, you won't struggle with it, I don't think. Um, but it's just not quite up to our usual high standard of audio. Uh, so apologies about that. One last thing before we lead into the interview with Sean. If you haven't already, please go ahead and leave us a review on your podcast app. Everyone that leaves us a review will be entered into a prize draw and you could win £100 worth of really cool carp paraphernalia. Um, so if you haven't left us a review already, go ahead, leave us a review. It doesn't matter if you leave us a review the first day that we started or the last day before we announce the winner. Everyone will be entered into that prize draw and you can win some really, really cool stuff, to be honest with you. So please go ahead and do that. If for whatever reason you can't leave a review on the podcast app that you use, most of them you can nowadays. But if you can't, uh, then go ahead to our YouTube channel leave us a review on there everyone will be entered in and you'll be in with a chance of winning all of the goodies without further ado let's lead into the interview sean welcome back to the podcast what is your tipple of the episode my man uh tipple is the glenn marnock which is a new one for me um it's one that Audi are selling at the minute. It's got a nice peaty taste to it. I quite like a peaty whiskey. And that's what I've got poured in the glass. Not started it yet, but it's there. Beautiful. I saw your picture on uh, Instagram earlier. It looked like a um, Macallan bottle from the side. I don't know if you've had a Macallan, Irish, uh, sorry, Scottish whiskey. Well, yeah, but you wouldn't uh, face an Audi one straight to the camera, would you? So I twisted it <laughs> on its side. <laughs> what you did there. I see what you did there. But, uh, no, it's a nice drink, and it's very, very affordable. So. Yeah. Beautiful. I can't get into the peaty ones myself. I just find them way too much. Really can't. No, I had a Talisker bought me um, originally, and I didn't realise I was into peaty ones until I had that, and I just, just like the peaty whiskies now. Yeah, yeah. Tarask is very peaty as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's an acquired taste, I guess. Yeah. Okay, and Pete is with us. What are you guzzling tonight, Pete? Um, I'm not guzzling. I'm being very sensible. I'm just having one tonight, maybe two. Um, but tonight I've gone for a Krabby's Original Ginger Beer. I uh, haven't had one for a long time. Bit wintry, why not? That's, that's two more than last time. I think you was on the Coca-Cola last time. That's right, Sean, yeah. But yeah, no, you're very right. I was um, plugged up at work last time. Yeah, plugged up at work. I think you said you'd escape the kids was more to the point. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very true. And yourself, Sam, what's your tipple tonight? Well, I've only got... I'm going light tonight. I've only got four beers. Um I've got two Doom Bars and two Old Speckled Hens. So pretty basic, basic ales. Nothing too flashy. Right. Well, it was all the way back in May that we last had you on, Sean. Um, 
and obviously we were in the midst of the first lockdown uh, as we record this we're towards the end of the second lockdown it's currently the 24th of november what has been happening in your world of angling sean uh still been getting out the weekends i'm a weekend angler um been doing two nights each week whenever i've been able to i mean this second lockdown has been much easier with us still being allowed back out in the bank now the first time first lockdown i found it very difficult uh just not being able to get out i was isolating working from home so i was never able to escape the walls uh thought at the time it was the angling that i was missing but in reality i was i was having lots of trouble sleeping which i don't usually struggle with I, in the end snuck off out into the garden in the area out of the way had a night outdoors and slept incredibly so i actually ended up with a little den in the garden in the end and i think that uh, got me through lockdown as ridiculous as it sounds it's i realized it was the the fresh air and the wind on my face that I was missing more than the angling it's weird isn't it how you you just when you get out in nature you feel better like I I, I think I said to you earlier Sean <clears throat> I did um a, a two-nighter last week <laughs> which for me these days is uh is quite a lot I just do quick overnighters but I did two nights on the trot last week well it might be the week before actually and I just came back, a, honestly, a different person, like a not yeah. probably a nicer person, more patient, more relaxed. I think just being out there for a sustained period of time definitely does something to you. It's probably something we should all do more of. Well, I think there's something to be said for the just simplicity of fresh air. You're not breathing in the same regurgitated air, you know, with air conditioning and everything else nowadays. It's, you know, everybody's breathing the same stuff all the time yeah <clears throat> yeah yeah i mean I, I live in the countryside i get out most days <clears throat> i definitely I, I i dread to think where i'd be if i didn't do that um i guess as well just being around nature and, and just kind of unwinding and getting your yeah i mean there's so many different things flying at us in the day-to-day -day, isn't it i mean you, i know you've got your own office for, for your different businesses sean um you know the emails forever pinging off and then it's the phones ringing and then your your mobile phones going and i think sometimes maybe just to get away from all that and it's just you and the nature and you take everything in and you just kind of stop a little bit i think that it yeah, must definitely positive you, you know, it must do you need to be able to lock a door at the end of the day Mm. and i think that's one of the problems when you you try and work from home is you never get away from it yeah you got a home office right yeah yeah i try and try and do most from home but uh i certainly did all through lockdown i've, I've got health issues so i was you know i was being extra careful to keep out of the way of everybody and and do what we were supposed to be doing uh still to this day i'm still limited to just one shop a week and that's the only time i really mix with people other than the obvious telephones and such like you know sounds perfect to me <laughs> i think the older i get yeah yeah i, I just don't it's, like it's, <clears throat> uh, i enjoy my own company but it's you know it's two-sided mm. you know, yeah it's got its good points it's it's got its other points you know yeah, yeah. but i think once you're forced to to lock down and and not do anything, that's when you realise that uh, 
how many people you normally do mix with. Mm. You know, when you, you think you're living a relatively solitary life, the until you have to, you don't quite realise just how much you, you know, you are. Yeah, yeah. In terms of your angling, since the first lockdown was lifted, did you go out all guns blazing or, or did you ease back? Yeah, no. No, it's, um, everywhere was very busy, as, as you probably appreciate, and mm. I tried to fish the local, um, which was a little bit too busy for me, but saying that, I'd, I think first trip back, I started with a 38 common and a 34 common brace within an hour, mm. so came back quite uh, quite spectacular. But it, it was just too busy for me. I was turning up and I was having to take whatever swim was left and everything else. I ended up escaping to one of the quieter syndicates and spent most of my summer on there. Had a great time, caught some lovely fish. No sort of absolute monsters, but, you know, it's not really the be-all and end-all to me. The important thing to me is where I'm doing it and, and how I'm doing it. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> Definitely. Do, do you have, um, I mean, are, are you particular about the, the strains that you fish for? I, I understand what you're saying. You want it to be a nice venue. I'm exactly the same. Do, do, you, do you like fishing for certain type of fish, you know, quote unquote old fish or, or are you just happy? If um, not particularly old ones. I, there's types of carp I prefer to catch, but again, that isn't the be all and end all. The, the important thing for me is the venue and the methods needed on the venue if I can get that right and enjoy the way that I'm doing it not too many people about I'll I'll be happy for a fat round mirror or a long slim common mm -hmm. uh, it's the, the fish aren't aren't the major thing with me it's it's the the experience it's the actual doing it and trying to make that as enjoyable as possible yeah yeah absolutely I mean, aside from fishing, anyone that follows you on social media will see the vast array of uh, open flame stoves that you have, for want of a better phrase. You're obviously massively into the, the kind of primal cooking style, um, not to mention, you know, all the different dishes that, that, you, that you cook up. How did you get into that side of, uh, of your bank life? I've always been into cooking on the bank and well saying that I, I suppose when I upped the levels up was the first time I became single um, because I could fish four nights a week I started fishing four nights a week and suddenly the diet went downhill rapid you know it was the old chip shop on the way or sandwiches from the garage or a Chinese or whatever and I soon found, I was still still doing five-day-a-week job and everything. I was still employed and everything else. But I was I was spending four nights a week on the bank. And after two or three weeks of it, I was just worn out. I was just feeling really down and everything else, thinking I was pushing it too much on the fishing side of things. And somebody commented about diet and food and started trying to cook on the bank what I'd normally be eating at home. And everything improved so sort of since that day I've, I've spent quite a lot of attention to what I'm you know what I'm what I'm cooking what I'm doing rather than the easy cheese sandwich and everything mm. I try and cook the same as I would do <clears throat> any other time 
uh, as years have gone on, it's it's like a lot of things. Same as angling, you know, you, you things get a little bit repetitive at times. And in the angling, I've started occasionally do things and make things a little bit more difficult or spice it up a little bit. You know, sometimes I go and use just limit myself to using sand pin reels, or sometimes play about with cane rods and things. And very much with the cooking, I just started making it more difficult and decided quite a few years ago I was going to see if I could just cook on sticks and nothing else, sticks, twigs and things, anything I could forage. And that's basically what I do to this day. I actually get a kick out of the fact that, you know, I'm not having to buy fuel. Yeah. Just pick a few twigs up and you've got a meal, which also cuts down what you're carrying with you as well. Yeah, so I was going to ask whether it was just a, a, a traveling light thing. I didn't think that was the case because I've seen your gear. I don't think you're you travel. No, no. I, I, um, I, so is it just I, the, the thrill of sort of you know gathering some moss and some some kindling, etc.? Yeah, I, I suppose it's the the kid in me and everything. Really, I just I used to light fires as a kid when I shouldn't do, but I, I just light fires and. I like the smell of smoke and yeah. I just get a big kick out of the fact that I can produce a meal just over, you know, things I've picked up without putting myself out. Yeah. You know, generally it's uh, 10 paces away from the swim and there's plenty to burn on most of the water fish. Have you ever been out and maybe, I don't know, maybe it's been peeing down for, for a long time. Have you ever been caught short on, on kindling and wood to find? I do carry an emergency bag in the Land Rover, but it's it's very rare it ever gets gets attacked. Um, if you look up in in most trees, there's always dead branches. They're always dry. If they're wet on the outside, they're only wet on the top where the rains hit them. They're always dry underneath. But a, a quick scrape of the bark, and you've got dry wood. Right. Yeah. Cool. It's the the number one thing everyone says. Well, what about when it rains? But it's I've never ever not been able to to cook over twigs. Mm -hmm. and i mean we we won't go on about this for for a long time because i know most people are here for for the the angling side but i'm quite interested i've been believe it or not i've been looking at those in fact i started looking at them ages ago when i wanted to do some uh touring on on a on a bike what would you what would you say is is the things to look out for because there i mean i was shocked at how many of these small portable um would would um fueled stoves there are what what should we look out for the most compact smallest flattest most versatile one i've used um is the bush box bush box xl uh they look quite a lot of money for for what they are but it's one another one of those things if something happens to mine i'd buy another one tomorrow straight away yeah i put off buying one for a long while but the beauty of those the Obviously, you burn your twigs on them or or coals, whatever you want to burn. But I actually carry a very small transier stove with me, a little yeah. paraffin burner. Mm. Uh, you can pop one of those in there and, you know, if you can't be able to look for twigs or one of the venues of fish, there's a couple of swims where you can't really get near the trees and they're very strict about being off your rods. So I just drop the transier in it then. And again, transier, the, the tiny little things. You know, so they don't take any carrying, but you've always got an emergency backup. What, what always worries me about the trangers is getting the um, getting the, the 
the meth on your hands and that tainting my bait. Oh, I said that to a lot of people for a lot of years, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't actually use meth, to be fair. I use, um, oh, what do you call it, a bite from B&Q, a clear liquid. There's hardly any smell on it anyway, but I just don't seem to get it on me either, and I'm as clumsy as I come. But I don't like meth. Meth, meth does linger, and, you know, you can always smell that. Yeah. Is it yeah. bioethanol? I'm just trying to think what it is now. But it's just clear liquid, like I say. It's a lot much, much cheaper than mess as well. But you can buy it in bottles from being q You had a um a little stove with a robin on it, um, on your Instagram maybe a week ago. It looked like you had a little container of well, not mess obviously, but some kind of combustible liquid in there. What what was that? Yeah, that was that was the um the bush box, which I normally burn twigs in, but that had a um a transure inside it okay okay can you buy sort of purpose-built um like solid fuels for them and i only ask because um i've just i've ordered myself one for well for my kids to give me for christmas to be honest right. uh, it's, it's like the bush box um but i think it says it licks harder it's a copy um, yeah yeah it's a little bit thinner metal that one so. that's it yeah but it's, it's like a tenner delivered to um to your door from eBay. Um, yeah. I've seen some people using sort of um, like purpose made sort of like a solid fuel. Is that something you've used before? Uh, you can buy it, but I, I just, like I said, I've never found it a problem picking up twigs. So, you know, it's just not a route I've gone down, but I know people do. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I do if I'm, if I'm grilling, if I'm cooking something that's going to be taking quite some time, I add a couple of barbecue charcoals to the fire pit occasionally. They just hold the heat a lot longer. You know, you're not feeding quite so much, but mm -hmm. that's about the only time I ever use anything that's artificial, to be fair. Yeah, and charcoal's not too artificial. It's not exactly cheating, is it? No, to be fair, I, I normally buy the briquettes, but uh, yeah. <laughs> so they're, <laughs> they're not quite the same as a normal burnt wood. But, <laughs> but you know, you, you can, you can, anything that'll burn, basically. Mm -hmm. and, and the other thing beauty of the burning over twigs or whatever i get very little rubbish because most of it i just burn exactly yeah and it's gone it's amazing how much rubbish you you know does does totally disappear no absolutely is is bushcraft um is it stemmed from fishing would you would you sort of say that you're that you're a bushcraft hobbyist is it like a separate hobby to your fishing or has it always been sort of amalgamated no i've always combined the two but there's there's a massive bushcraft community out there you know there's lots of people do that and you know i think a lot of them are make great carp anglers you know they've got the natural outdoorsy type of attitude you know they, they hunt things down they find things but uh, it's, it's a crossover thing really i enjoy the bushcraft side as much as i enjoy the fishing mm-hmm um what i always like from your your instagram shots is you've always got your your meal set out on its platter and you've got an opinel pen knife um uh, which is something i always had as kids uh, my dad's always bought me an opinel knife i don't know why he just has but um yeah. one of the easiest knives in the world to sharpen mm. yeah that's true because i'm rubbish at sharpening knives i don't have a problem with an opinel um, and again they're very cheap as as far as knives go yeah yeah i guess so i haven't i've still got mine um one of mine from a child i 
I got it out the other day and it was, I was always in my tackle bag um, and everything's got wet a few times recently and I've just sort of left it in its pouch yeah. um, and it's all seized up so I've given it a little lick of oil and sort of given it a bit of um, TLC I guess um, yeah. but it's one of those things I've had for, for a long long time and quite sentimental now yeah, you soon bring them back. I had uh, the one that you normally see in my pictures. Uh, that was seized up at the weekend, to be fair. I'd sort that out in the bank. But a little bit of coconut oil on it, soon sorted that. That's it, yeah, all sorted. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> I've just bought one. <laughs> right. <laughs> it sounds like I'm talking to a couple of clones here. <laughs> <laughs> weird but, uh, no it's not i get a lot of pms obviously as as you would do and it's it's been quite i didn't used to put many cooking type pictures up it was just something that i did and i started sharing a few of them and some of the kit i use and i seem to get more likes on that now than doing the angling ones so well you'll have seen this last year or so i've been pushing that side quite a bit more but it's amazing how many people come in contact you know just asking about things and and wanting to know where to get everything from. So it's, you know, I ought to have shares really with Alpenil and uh, Bush Box and Kelly Kettle and various others. And what was the, you've got like a, it looks like a smoker. I don't know if it is a smoker or not. Sort of like a big barrel barbecue you've, you've got as well with the big chimney. Oh, the wood burner. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite a, a new thing for me, that one. But oh, it's brilliant. Absolutely love that. It's a bit over the top if you've, got to do much walking or whatever it's quite a heavy thing but mm-hmm. you get it in the barrel and it's all right but it's start off it's something i've always wanted it's a log burner yeah I'd, I'd wanted one as much for use at home as as you know out in the bank but on the swims where it's i can get it to to the swim easily it's, it's just brilliant you've got a permanent hot plate uh normally brew up in the mug i just use steel mugs and but you do the same with the kettle. You just leave it on, and you've got constant boiling water. Yeah, yeah. And is that is that something you can use to sort of keep yourself warm? I know it sounds daft, but is that something you could have for sort of like the entrance to that, in like the or yeah. the, the main yeah, body of it in the entrance to the brolly? They're actually made for uh, for tents anyway. It's a side of camp in which the core hot tent in, and you have to okay. have it in the tent with you, and the pipe out the out the material. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And the, the way it suits as well, because there's a I've got an anti uh, spark thing on it, so there's no fear of sparks dropping on the bivy or anything. Mm-hmm. You, you can, I mean, bivies are tiny compared to the tent, so you can actually face it into the bivy, have it inside the bivy with the chimney outside anyway, if you wanted. I mean, I've not actually used it for that yet. I, you know, I didn't get it until you know back end of this summer, but it, it's lovely on the evening just watching the the flames flickering away through the glass door yeah i can believe it glass door i can face myself and it's it's amazing how warm how psychologically warm it is without even feeling the heat you know just just seeing that flickering away and it's not giving loads of light off so you're not uh you know i've always been a bit paranoid with lights in the past but no it's just a nice nice bit of kit you know it's, it's tests appear a little bit really but that's me altogether i just don't like to fit in i like to do my own thing that's it. It's whatever whatever floats your boat as well. If you're getting your enjoyment from it, then so be yeah. it. Have you got any other sort of like tips with like your, I guess your bushcrafty type things with with keeping yourself warm um, when it comes into the winter months? 
Uh, one thing I've I found after a, a lot of years of messing about with a lot of different clothing is I find it incredible in this day and age with all the advancements we've had in everything, but still the warmest things are wool. <laughs> you know, I, I tend to wear a merino wool base layer. Uh, merino wool socks I wear all year long, and I just... I don't seem to suffer with the sweaty feet or the cold feet or anything anymore like I used to. No. It's, okay. it's, the animals got it sorted years ago. We keep coming up with all these various acrylics and fleece and this, that and the other. None of them are as warm as wool. And if you're doing the bushcrafty type thing with bits of fire everywhere, it doesn't burn. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Very good point. I got some uh, merino wool socks a couple of weeks ago, and they are all. I mean, I probably yeah. got, them, uh, but they're awful. They really are. They've they've misshaped yeah. already, and they're they're not not too good. Do you, you get washed them too hot? Oh, uh, thirty? Really? No. Oh, thirty? No, I, I wash mine at thirty. Yeah, you sound I, like old women now, aren't we? Discussing we are. <laughs> I think <laughs> no. I guess it depends the types you've. You know, I mean, there's if you look, majority of merino wool things are blended with something else. So I guess I was going to ask as a, a percentage, percentages and everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I know a lot of people go on about bamboo clothing these days, but they put merino wool in that. Yeah. So I think a lot of people are sort of rediscovering things that's already been discovered. <laughs> yeah. Is that like carp angling, really, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong there. How many, on, on that note, how many years is it that you've been carp angling now? Uh, caught first one in 1977. Uh, that was an accidental capture, to be fair, but that started me off carp fishing. I, I didn't want to do anything other than catch carp at that time. I mean, I do fish for all species again now, but it, it totally turned my life around. Um, I think I might have touched on it before. I had three the first time I ever caught any. I was chub fishing on the trend, but all three was in the snow. So the, <laughs> the thing a lot of people aim to do, you know, the ambition of a lot of carp anglers is a carp in the snow. My first three were in the snow. Talk about peaking, yeah. So that was forty-three years ago, right? Uh, yeah, forty-three yeah. years. Yeah. So, I mean, sorry, go on. I was, I was just going to say, obviously, winter because it was snowing, so it would be forty-three. Yeah. Yeah, forty-three years. I mean, <clears throat> me and Pete have been <laughs> carp angling for probably half of that um and we've had some incredible uh some incredible st stories to tell what um what standout stories have you had happen to you in those 43 years of angling for carp oh, you put me on the spot there i was only saying so on the other day there can't be many sports where you can have so many highs in in one thing you know if you like a football player or whatever, you get to the World Cup and you score a goal, and that's you've done it then, haven't you? You know, it's, you're going to struggle to do that one again. But in carp angling, there's just so many, so many top achievements you can do. You know, from water to water, you can have the biggest, you can have bigots of fish, and you know, you have your biggest one in the snow in the sun. There's just so many highs in it. 
Um, yeah, sorry. I mean, in those 43 years of angling, I mean, you, you must have had some, uh, some, some eventful angling trips. I know you, you once told me about when you went to, um, to France for the first time, uh, to Cassien and, and Oh yeah, that, that was, uh, that was an adventure. <laughs> it was a, a t- it was 1985. I went to Cassien first and, uh, it was a time when, the UK carp anglers didn't didn't travel overseas to to catch carp. Uh, they've been poor regions had been over there. I always remember him appearing in the press with a thirty seven pound mirror from Cassian, and that got everyone interested, which is quite laughable nowadays when you you look at weights of fish. Uh, he started doing coach trips over there. There was a couple of other early pioneers who who made the trip themselves and. One of them was a chap called Don Smith. He used to have a company called Better Baits. And I can remember him having a, a 55 pound. A friend of mine was with him, Paul Dickinson. Uh, he'd, he'd had a 55, which was a, a phenomenal fish. Then I might be wrong now, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he went back about three weeks later and had a 62, which was, they were mind boggling fish back then. Uh, we decided on spur of the moment to go down and, you know, it was right in the first couple of months of anyone going there, really. But uh, we started getting, there was all these rumours of of problems on casting, you know, you weren't supposed to be night, night fishing and people were having tackle confiscated from them. There was having guns pointed at them and such like, and it was all presumed to be the police. Uh, I remember at the time there was people saying, oh, it's a load of nonsense, not happening. It was happening. And we was we were supposed to be there for two weeks. Uh, we lasted two or three days. They had to come back. We ended up middle of the night. We got raided. Okay, we weren't supposed to be night fishing. We'd, we'd been sleeping in the car park the first two nights. But on the third day, it started getting light and it started looking like something was going to happen. We stayed there. Then middle of the night, there were searchlights. There were dogs barking. There was gunfire uh, going in the water around us. We'd left everything in the boat so we could get away quick. And we basically got out of the way and came home the following day. Uh, I was in Chapiers the following morning. I had a breakfast before we got sorted. And he had a phone call asking if the English anglers were still there. So uh, we made a hasty retreat. Uh, my start of French fishing wasn't... Well, it was spectacular, but uh, it didn't come off the right way, really. And it did put me off travelling for a long while after that. In hindsight, now looking back, it, it wasn't the police at all. It was uh, it was locals dressing up as police and basically confiscating tackle from people and trying putting people off. Yeah, and you you said it wasn't it wasn't a rare occurrence to get a gun shoved in your face. No, no friend of mine. He he'd been on his hands and knees with a with a gun at him and a dog took it away at him. Yeah, scared him to death. Mm. Crikey. But that all seems to been forgotten about as well. I mean, there was quite a lot of stories from quite a few different people in the, you know, in the real early days of it, but you never hear those tales mentioned anymore. No, no. Like I say, it was enough to stop me sort of even thinking about going overseas for, for years after that. And we start on quite a lot, really. Mm. What what year was it you first went over there? Nineteen eighty five. Eighty five. Yeah, you just said that. Yeah. 
What what year is the Kevin Ellis fish? Uh, that was it was afterwards, so yeah. to be it wasn't long after. I don't think it'd be eighty seven, eighty eight, something like that. Yeah, Seems to remember that the weights had gone from sixty two. <clears throat> then Kevin Ellis. Oh no, Max Cottis had a sixty eight, didn't he? Then Kevin Ellis had a seventy two from memory. I remember it was the, the well, I think it was the um well, I was I was a kid, but I think it was the Kevin Ellis fish that really put Cassian into the limelight, wasn't it? No, no, it, oh. it was it was there well before that to be fair. Ah, okay. Like I say, Max Cottis leads I don't know if it was the first sixty or not, it was certainly the first first one I'm aware of in the UK I would have been. Right. But I, I might be talking wrong there. Like I say, it might have been Don Smith had a 62. Max had a 68, I think. Then the next big one I was aware of was Kevin Ellis's 72. Right, okay. But yeah, monstrous fish, but they were, they were a little bit after. Can you remember the big catfish being caught at Cassian? It was always reported as 200 pound. Uh, it was, yeah. the press always referred to it as 200 pound. Uh, I was there when that was caught. Johnny Allen added he was fishing with uh, Richie McDonald, but they too they they came away with us that uh, that same time the same night we were raided there was there were three of us and there was Richie McDonald, John Allen, and uh, Jeff Shaw. We were the six anglers who was on the lake basically, but we all we all ended up coming away together. Wow! Don't blame you. The Kevin Ellis fish was um that was eighty six, um and this is where I, I show my youth I guess compared to you guys a little bit because that was the year I was born, um. <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's a little bit before my time, um but the way I've always perceived sort of like Cassian was um the the Kevin Ellis fish was was the one that really sort of uh, sparked the big sort of um the, the drives of uh Europe of um. English anglers going over to Europe, um, but as you were saying before, there was there was a plenty of big captures that had already um, started it off. Yeah, I, I think that the Kevin Ellis one by that stage there was more people doing it, and people realising that it was something that you could do. You know, it wasn't one of these things like going into the middle of Africa in the jungle. You know, it was when we first went down there, we, you know, we didn't have a clue about it really, other than there been a couple of big fish caught. I know it took us 24 hours to get there. Uh, we got lost en route, but uh, I think it was a thousand miles from from his daughter actually pulling up at the lake. But it, it would just, nobody did it. You know, but after a year of a few people having a go at it, you know, it was, it was the problems were ironed out, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, and you, it just made it a bit easier for everybody. Yeah, completely different world back then. Um, you've so also got to remember the motors as well. That you know, I remember the transit van that Richie and Johnny Allen was in. Um, you could see the road through the floor. You know, they, they've got buckets patching holes up. You know, it's. <laughs> I mean, nowadays, I, I, I think about it a little bit. When, when we were a kid, when we used to go on holiday, we'd perhaps go to Cornwall or whatever on holiday, and Dad would be servicing the car for two weeks leading up to it. You know, yet nowadays, just get in a car and expect it to, to go wherever you want it to go. You know, but it was a bit different back then. 
Yeah, they've almost got a uh, shelf life now as well, though, haven't they? Cars they don't last as long as um, as the old ones. Or, for example, your your Landy. I can imagine talking of patching cars up with buckets. Your Land Rover's probably got a bit of <laughs> a bit of character to it. Well, yeah, I've had a few of them over the years, so yeah, yeah, some of them have. I mean, one of them I had fifteen years. That that, uh, that was a different motor, really. By the time I sold it again, but I think in the fifteen years I had it, I lost fifteen hundred quid on it when I sold it. So it didn't do too bad with it. No, it'd probably be worth a lot more now. They're uh, like collectors' items now; they're out of production. Yeah, yeah, the new one doesn't look like a Land Rover at all to me, but. Uh, Hey ho! But going back to the car scenario, and now you know we talk about you know I mentioned about reliability and such like. My first vehicle, uh, the first bit of traveling used to, I used to um, fish the Essex area, which would be 150, 170 mile each way from where I lived. But I used to have to fill the van up with oil halfway just to get there, and fill it up again when I got there. I used to fill it up again on the way back, and. You know, it's things that's quite laughable now. I mean, they shouldn't have been on the road, but the MOTs were just just so different to how they are now. No, that's it. You know, so, um, <clears throat> I remember that my first car had the old pull-out choke and you had to stick a load of pegs on it to that's sort right. of keep it going. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's it. Um, so I guess sort of back to, to cart fishing. Um I know, Sean, that you put out some questions to some of your followers on social media uh, and they came back with some some suggestions. Um, and one of them was sort of like with winter fishing um, and how you sort of change your approach, um, specifically with bait and maybe a change in hook baits. Um, hook baits, I don't alter an awful lot. Anyway, hook bait for me is normally the smallest bait in the swim um i try and feed with bigger baits than what i use on a hook bait it's very 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 rare to use anything other than a bottom bait which seems to surprise a lot of people uh summer or winter like i said i don't really alter it i use i use bottom baits to to my mind it's something i say a lot the, the fish's only enemy is us and why on earth you'd you'd want your hook bait to stand up and look Obviously, to be a hook bait, it just just beats me. Yeah, so many just seem to have pop ups on or wafters or whatever else. But every single safe bait the carp ever eats is hard on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I always feel more confident with with a, with a bait on the deck. Does presentation not sort of bother you in certain circumstances or is that something you're you'll only fish an area where you know it's sort of like a clean bottom or say if it was a bit silty a bit choddy um or in some sort of low-lying weed is, is that sort of thing not affecting you too much no in, i love fishing in silkweed and again it's something a lot of people seem to avoid but i, I love silkweed there's more more food in that than i've ever seen any other sort of weed uh, the only difference I make with silkweed is I crush the barb down, I fish barbless, so that the hook can still go in okay. Uh, I don't like barbless hooks. I always use barbed if I can use barbed, but in silkweed, I just crimp the barb down. Mm-hmm. If you play about in the edge with silkweed, you, you'll realise just how much that barb stops the bait going in, and I think that's one of the reasons a lot of people struggle to catch in silkweed. Basically, the fish suck in the bait and they can't actually get it in. 
because mm-hmm. the barb sort of tangled up in it. Yeah, um, yeah. And presumably the your barb's barbless thing. I mean, it's the age old debate, isn't it? And you look online and it's sort of debated to the hilts. But is that yeah. from a from a fish fish's mouth perspective? I think probably a rash statement saying I, I don't like barbs. Smaller fish, I think barbless are better for them when they a lot of head shaking and twisting and turning as you're playing them. Um, and the mouths tend to be a little bit softer as well. I think barbless are better. The bigger fish, I, I really honestly think a, a bar talk does less damage. Mm. Yeah, I I certainly agree. Um, I've had situations before with, with a, a barbless hook where I've sort of like done the double hooking and I've sort of almost sort of like sewn in a fish's mouth. Um, mm. And you have no idea how it happens because in theory you've got applied pressure, haven't you, the whole time um, when you're fighting the fish. But uh, it has happened to me. Yeah, I mean, we're never giving the fish as much pressure as we think we are anyway. I think if the lead is still attached, a lot of the time you, you play the fish at right angles anyway. So, you know, that right angle occasionally is going to tighten up and you're jolting them about. Yeah. You know, they're twisting about. No, for sure. And I think a lot of the time as well um, is it's a little bit of a misconceived idea of the higher test curve rods putting more pressure on the fish. Um. Yeah, again, that's it. Sounds right, but I remember doing a talk at the uh, Rico show at Coventry with Lee Jackson, and I was demonstrating how much pressure you're actually putting on with the rod. And I can remember I went plug names and everything, but I basically got a long range 13 foot three and a half pound rod that felt really powerful. A very soft actioned three and a half pound twelve foot rod, and a two and three quarter pound soft action rod. Uh, got line through them, attached them to scales, and basically pulled as hard as could. And so you actually shake when you get mm-hmm. as as hard as you can. You know, you, your muscles start going funny. And the asked all the audience which they thought would pull the hardest, and nearly everybody it'd be the. 13 foot three and a half long range poker stick. Uh, the 12 foot two and three quarter pulled exactly the same pressure as the 13 foot three and a half. The softer action three and a half, the sort of playing action, compound taper, um, that pulled half as much again. So it's very deceiving that as you pull in the 13 foot three and a half stiff rod, you think you're giving them loads, but you're not. You know, you, you only pull in the similar to a, to a softer rod. Yeah, and I think my take on it is because the rods, when it's fully compressed, there's just no more give, is there? It's no, I think no, at that point you're giving it everything. With a with a higher test curve rod, you can be um, there's always a little bit more it can sort of give. Well, you can never pull very hard with a with a long rod anyway. Um, it's the reason why the proper big fish, you know, the tuna, the shark, you know, marlin and such like, they never fish for them with long rods. You know, it's always always short five six seven foot rods mm-hmm. because you can pull a lot harder with them the the extra length goes against you you think you're pulling hard but in effect you're not so I'm, I'm sort of taking this off topic a little bit what are your thoughts then on sort of like there's a, a lot of craze at the moment with the shorter rods um and obviously like you've got like your nine or a ten foot rod there's a water near me where the ten foot uh where it wasn't won't let you fish with anything under 11 foot 
Um, my personal right. sort of feelings was because he probably just has a bugbear of all the crazy short rods and he doesn't like them and that's his sort of sticking point. Um, but the reasons being it can cause sort of like uh, more mouth damage. I don't know if you've got any sort of thoughts on this because my yeah. thought is surely if like the test curve's all relative, whether it be a shorter rod or a longer rod, the test curve is all relative. No. Um 25 years of spent in the tackle shop, you used to find ways when you was having to be behind the counter waiting for customers, you used to find ways to pass time at times, you know. And one day I got the idea of, I needed a rod for a bit of hook and hold type scenario where I hadn't got a lot of room. It was actually a catfish situation. And I wanted a rod that would pull hard and ended up with the old, well, actually put the scales on the tip rings to be fair. But out of all the rods in the shop, bearing in mind we sold uh, shark rods, tuna, stand up sticks, and everything else, the rod that pulled the hardest in the whole shop was a free spirit six foot tree creeper. And that's about two and three quarter pound. Wow. Okay. And th that pulled considerably more than, than the really heavy duty boat rods. Hmm. And it's which which do you ever use sort of shorter rods in your cart fishing? Yeah, I use. I don't like six foot rods. Um, I mean, probably now I'm involved with free spirit. I sell a lot of six foot rods, but to me, you've got no leverage with them. You know, you're playing the fish on on ten inches of rod when it's bent round. Mm -hmm. So if you've got pads in the edge or reeds or overhanging trees and such like, I just I don't see why they're so popular. You know, you can't really reach round. Um, I use the eight and halves a fair bit, and I use ten foots as well. But uh, just on the waters that, that are right for it, you know, from casting from under trees and such like. I enjoy playing them on short rods, but uh, you do need to take your time on them. They do do pull hard. Yeah, so I've, I've sort of... Um... I guess joined the short rod craze this is many many years ago when I sort of started a family and things and uh it's for me it was all about the the portability and the pack down size and I've always been a, a sort of a travel light kind of guy anyway um and I recently moved for some softer nine footers to some sort of stiffer action ten footers and I've got to say the first fish I pulled into I I sort of pulled out of once I sort of I pulled it sort of like locked up against the snag um and actually noticed a real difference. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't get this with anglers wanting to use the 10 foot rods and still try and chuck a long way with them and everything. I just find playing the fish from any range on a shorter rod, it's just, it's hard work. You, you're forever pumping and, you know, you're not retrieving a lot of line between pumps. Mm. But, but like I say, I do use short rods, but generally, you know, when I'm just fishing a few rod lengths out. Yeah, a lot. A lot of my fishing's sort of close range. Um, I got. I can. I can fish probably accurately at sixty yards if I was sort of spotting and baiting. Um, yeah. And then I could probably my my limit would be about eighty yards. Um, that's with the ten footers, yeah. With the ten footers, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's being realistic. That is, you know. Yeah. The bigger chuckers will get a bit further than that, but most people, if they were to be truthful, you know, 80 yards is, is really the sensible limit on that sort of rod. 
Yeah, for sure. And you're sort of fishing nowadays, is it? Do you sort of do much long range fishing, or do you find as you sort of um, as you've matured through the years, it's sort of something that doesn't appeal to you as much anymore? No, I still do it when I when I feel a need to. Um, I mean, some of the venues I've fished over the years, it's it's all been long range. You know, you I, I'll always fish a rod short, but there are waters where I have really struggled to catch fish short. Um, I, I do what's needed. I'd much rather catch him a rod length. Well, to be fair, my favourite range is a 30 and 40 yard. That's the ideal for me. I've not got to crawl about quite the same on the bank and, <laughs> you know, and I'm not uh, stretching myself to, you know, I can do the job properly. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I do what's needed, basically. I've, I've not been on ultra long range waters for a while. I mean, at, at Granville, you know, it was very much a case in a lot of the time just those extra few meters would get you an extra take or would actually catch you with fish you know we was fishing silly ranges there at the time i think the furthest caught one on on a measured cast was 192 but uh wow you know, it's, it's it's something nice having the armory being able to do that is that 192 yards your longest yeah, yeah. and that's that's incredible and that's 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 casting. You've not sort of boating that out. No, that's no, casting. Mm. Mm. I suppose you you're quite a big frame guy. I guess it's <laughs> it sort of uh, leads to it. But I, uh, yeah, that's something I could never do. I think it's, it's one of the things in my fishing. It's I could probably... speed, speed and timing with casting. Mm. And the thing that people don't use is, is body weight, body transfer weight. Uh, for years, I was I've always been told me had okay with you know with casting and everything but going back a lot of quite a lot of years now when the rods weren't capable of doing what they can do now i'd got to the 140 yard mark which you could fish comfortably you know you, the odd cast you could put in and go a lot further but you know if fish were at 140 i could fish for them and catch them at 140 but i, I seem to have been stuck at the same limit for years and years and years and we was doing some filming in france and it was the first time i met mark Hutchinson. Um, and I said to him, I says, I'll make a cast, rip me to pieces, do what you want. You know, you won't offend me, but see if you can put any more distance on me casting. And I, I explained that, you know, I've been stuck on 140 for years. And he put the first cast in and sort of nodded his head. He says, yeah, that went. But uh, I always used to swing the lead and try and catch the lead on the backswing, thinking I was compressing the rod more and he said next cast stop swinging your lead so i did that did the next cast and made three casts and from i think 140 which was the first cast which was always my normal you know long long one i think i did 170 something in, in three casts and just the little tweets that he gave me the main one was the body weight transfer i'd always cast with my arms like most people once i not forgot about the arms, but use the body instead, but use the body as well as, and suddenly the, the distance was coming up. And like I say, just from 140 to 175 in a few casts. And of course, you work on it then, and you know, you get the timing a little bit better, and you know, the big, big distances eventually come. Hmm. Yeah, for, for me, it's something on my list to improve, definitely. Um, I think I've been quite sort of I fish down in Cornwall. I fish a lot of a uh, lot of small, intimate waters. I guess, um, 
And it's been, yeah, well, that's it, the thing. If you're not doing it, I mean, long range for me at the moment is probably 120, you know, as, as far as I need to put one anywhere. If I was to go back on really big water, I, I probably would struggle on the big distances now. But you soon get in the swing of it again. You know, it's just practice scenario. You know, just getting used to it again. Mm. There's some animal casters out there. You know, in my first couple of years on Grenville, I think it was probably the biggest caster on there. But within a short time, you know, the lads turned up and I just more so ran after that. You know, there's a lot of them, eight to 100 plus, you know, and I've still not been able to do that one. Not with beta drag. I've, I've done it with straight lead. Mm. I see. And is, is this mono? Are you sort of using braid or Grenville? No, mono. mono. I don't like braid. I won't use braid. Mm. Do, do you use it on your marker rod or anything, or you just sort of stay with it? I use away? it on the marker rod, marker rod only, but I still have a, a fluorocarbon leader or a copolymer leader. Mm. I see. That's, that's something worth mentioning that. I, I do see a lot of people with the, the marker rods with braid all the way through, and the amount of times people struggle to get the float to come up, and it's simply because they've got a braided leader on. You know, they're so soft that it travels around the, the main line in the air and they're in a tangle on the bottom. Mm. Substitute that for a, for a nylon or copolymer or ferrocarbon leader. It never happens. Every one pops up. And it just amazes me. More people don't attach a normal leader. Yeah, you speak in perfect sense, Sean. I'm sort of thinking in disbelief that I'm probably that stupid because I have those problems <laughs> that you mentioned straight away. I fish with people who do and I always get onto them and I don't know, they never seem to do it. The, the main thing I get is, yeah, but you're not going to feel so much. Total nonsense that. Two rod lengths of nylon. You, you bounce your normal fishing rod in the end, in the edge. You feel as much as you can with braid on the yard. Okay, if you've got... 70, 100 yards of nylon out there, there is a lot of stretching. You can't feel the same. But there's hardly any stretching in rod length and a half. No, and not at all. Of it, if you need to leave the, the floating position for any reason, you know, if you don't get some action on the rod or whatever, the fluorocarbon leader in the middle of the swim doesn't stand out like a big, thick piece of braid. Mm -hmm. No, very true. Very true. Um, so, sort of, Rewinding, going back to to where we were with winter, we sort of um, digressed a little, I guess. Um, so quite often you don't sort of like bait wise. You're very much a match the hatch. Um, yeah, I, I don't feed them so much in the winter. Um, I always like to fish on bait. It's it's rare a fish as a single hook bait. Uh, sometimes I, I, I'm quite a lover of just little stocking mesh pockets of smell. Um, I tend to bit bait fish quite a bit, if that makes sense, you know, just bits of things and just trying to create a a visual rather than lots of sense. I, I don't up flavour levels like a lot of people do. Um, that's that all stem from watching the fish in the garden, actually. Uh, when they sort of semi laid up in the winter, if you drop a really high flavour bait amongst them, they'll shuffle and move out of the way of it. Drop a normal bait amongst them, they just sit there, and two days later it'll be gone. But mm. the you know, it's, it's, it seems to be one of these things that you know, so many people they just somebody must have written one day about you know, upping flavor levels in the winter, and so many people do it. Yeah, that's it. And do you sort of we 
happily move your rods around a little bit more come the winter time or are you sort of happy if you're happy with the area you can sort of sit it out and wait there and it depends on venue that one really um i very much as i know we touched on it on the last one i'm a small lead user when i can uh particularly so in the winter and if i've got to use big leads i know we said it before i'll go on to running all the time in winter but uh no i, I work on not spooking them basically I'll, I'll always use the smallest lead i can reach them with and just try and be discreet with it mm. Um, and regarding sort of like the fish themselves, is that something that you would would change anything towards or like a change in behaviour for them in the winter? Or is, is there anything you sort of notice sort of over the years? I know you sort of write your diaries and you document everything. I don't know if you've got anything to interject on sort of fish behaviour and how to approach it differently. I take a lot of notice of the warm spots on the lake um again it's something that you i don't know you, you look at your, your typical waterway you can catch them close in you know everywhere's got a snag bush or something you know the fish will be under there there's always a warm side and the cold side to that bush and it amazes me how people have a favorite side to want to fish yeah i i like to fish baits in the warmest part of the lake. If you watch the sun come round, mm -hmm. the bits of bank that get the first rays of sun, they're never really getting any warmth from it. The last rays of sun in the winter is where most of the warmth's coming from. So areas that get most of the sun from early afternoon till till dark, very often areas where the carp will be sat. If I'm really struggling to find carp, uh, in the winter, the middle of the lake has always been a good bet. It seems to be a, a comfort zone where they're not getting buffeted too much, they're not having to move about too much. So either central areas or warm areas. The other scenario, if you've got weed and shallow water and such like, um, weed is obviously dark, absorbs a little bit of heat, and it'll be warmer than a gravelly area or a clean mm -hmm. area. No, definitely. It's all, if you go for a walk in your garden with no socks and shoes on in the winter, you'll be amazed at the difference in temperature between some black tarmac and some concrete slabs, for instance. And it's exactly the same under the water. And the shallower the water, the more of an effect that is. I don't know if you've done much sort of open water swimming, but from the bits that I've done, it actually... This is sort of um, in contradiction to what you said. What really amazes me is sort of like, I guess, the therm... I don't know if the thermocline's right, because I don't know if the thermocline's just um, regarding depths rather than actual area of the lake. But when you're swimming along, you go through some really different sort of temperatures from warm to freezing cold. And a lot of the time, if you were just to sort of swim across the lake and to just to sort of like feel where the warm areas and the cold areas are, you wouldn't have put it down to where the sort of like the sun's shining. I don't know if that it doesn't no, make any sure, sense. Surely um, that'd be springs. Oh, maybe. I mean, I'm talking about big quarries. This is where I've done it, which um, yeah. is super deep. And I couldn't imagine it would have an effect. I don't know. Um, One thing that I, I mean, we don't seem to get so many freeze-ups as we used to do we don't seem to get so many ice overs but 
one thing I always make a point when when the lakes are frozen is again you, you see the warm areas don't have a look at them when they froze there's always a dark patch which has been the last bit to freeze mm. and you'll get several of that and i've always put those down to being springs anyway but if you do it enough times you know each time it freezes you'll, you'll notice the patches in the same spots each time and again it's a real real simple hot spot <laughs> no pun intended a real easy way of finding a, a spot is just looking at a lake when it's froze over yeah, it's um, it's just completely basic, but eye-opening at the same time. It makes well, perfect most, sense. Most of my fishing is, you know, I know a lot of the times when I've mentioned things to people, and it's, like, well, it's obvious, well, yeah, you just, you know, it takes me a lot of years sometimes to suss these things, but a lot of the sort of breakthroughs I've had in my own angling have been so, you know, you can slap your head really for not thinking of it earlier. Mm, that's it are you still there sam i'm here yeah i'm listening intently <laughs> i'm enjoying <laughs> back, uh, letting go of the reins <laughs> that's the quietest i think you've been on a pod ever yeah well i've got some bad news as well i think i've ordered the wrong stove <laughs> <laughs> what have you ordered yourself well i remember you saying uh the xl didn't you i've got yeah. the yeah i've got the um just the, the normal push box. Um, right. It's all right. You just have to keep feeding them. That's the only thing. The bigger one, it, it keeps going a bit longer. Oh, well. There we go. Yeah, it's still yeah. doing the job. Yeah, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. A bit of fun. And he'll be lighter than mine and slightly smaller than mine. <laughs> Unlike my lads, see? <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think it's one of those things. You probably get one and then you, you get a feel for what you like, don't you? Um, you probably yeah they, they might not suit you you know i, I just enjoy using them but the was it a lick lick cider someone said they had uh that yes. they're, you know, they're a great starter one as well to make sure that you you know you are going to use it and like them but you can always upgrade to bush box or whatever afterwards yeah I can't, i'll be honest i try not to cook on the bank so i do quick overnighters i just take cold food because i don't want to yeah. be down with extra weight and i want to be mobile but i mean that that's just the way my angling is these days unfortunately um i just think it's a bit of fun a little bit of fun yeah but you know cutting your gear down though it's like you know you can have your fresh brew in the morning with one of those and you're carrying a lot less than you are if you're carrying a gas cartridge in the stove yeah yeah particularly if you get yourself stainless mug and just brew in the mug as i do i go about it these days yeah. sorry I go without tea these days. Oh, right. right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Crate of beer weigh, weighs me down a little bit, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> bottle, bottle of wine's allowed to carry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very true. Um, just, just, I mean, I, I was really enjoying your, your the chat that, that you two guys were having. Just to backtrack a little bit, and, and something I wasn't sure on, you said that your hook bait is the smallest bait there. Now, I'm guessing that's because you use a bait out of the bag, so to speak. And I'm guessing you want it to be lighter than the others to, to suck up. But... Yeah, it's when I'm boily fishing, really, because obviously if I'm, you know, using the hemp and such like, you know, the hook bait isn't going to be the the smallest bait. But yeah, it's, what, what, I couldn't tell you the last time I cast a round bait out. I always chew baits up and misshape them, the hook bait. But uh, I quite like fishing that 
sort of bait, a monster, just a normal untampered bait, boily. Other than a, you know, perhaps a bit of a pre-soak of given it. So, so why smaller than the rest of the baits you're feeding? I just simply cause less suspicion. If you watch a lot of the early quarter stuff, everything small just gets hoovered up. Mm. It's the normal single round boilers that seem to have a back on. Do you get plagued with, uh, you know, quote unquote nuisance uh, nuisance species? No, unfortunate really. I, I don't really suffer them on the waters of fish. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I've had one this summer. It was a eleven and a half pound bream. I can live with one of them. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not plagued with with nuisance fish. I, when I when I've been on waters in the past with nuisance fish, I. Bream have always been the biggest pain mm. uh, for me. I, you know, I can live for a few things, but when you sort of six times a night and such like, with them, a little dodge I found with Bream was fishing a 20 mil cut in half and fishing it back to back like a butterfly. They just seemed to struggle to take them, just seemed to struggle to get them in. Mm. Uh, again, an easy little tip there if anyone's getting a night. I've done it with 15 as well. You still get the odd one, but it, it does cut your tape rate down when you're getting nuisance fish i want that must be something to do with the vacuum i mean they'll take a double 20 easy yeah yeah but it, it's it's smooth and goes in easy doesn't it? Yeah. think about it yeah, you yeah. Know, if you suck a malteser off your, your kitchen table it's going to go in easier than one coming up flat flat ways first <laughs> yeah i guess yeah I'd imagine they'd they probably, because, you know, they've got to open the mouth a lot for 20 mil. Yeah. You know, and I'd imagine, you know, they only need to put the lips around it and they can suck it in. But on a flat side, it's having to stretch that bit more for it. I don't know. It's um, sort of armchair theories there, but it, it's yeah. certainly, it's a dodge you've done, which, which has given me a little bit more sleep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's not totally foolproof, but it, you know, it slows the job down. Yeah. And, and I mean, do, do you, in terms of your boily fishing, um, do you do anything different in winter? Do, do you do you change anything at all or, or not? For the carp's chemo reception or feeding requirements? No, not really. No, I, I, I fish. My baits are very subtle compared to a lot of people's. I, you know, I don't want my bait screaming out I, I want them to be able to see them but that doesn't mean using fluoros you know you've only got water clarity in the winter anyway mm. you know i like just little pockets of of cloud and things happening mm. yeah i use a lot of crushed up dusted baits stuck on top of normal baits and things so there's always something happening you know like a bonbon type scenario or you know, just the liquids which I've already put in there as well. You know, there's the, the bait's working straight away all the time. Yeah, I mean, you're coming at that from a not only so. I use a lot of pace wraps as well, which I probably use. I, I do use them all through the summer, but it's not on all the rods in the summer. It's rarer cast out in the winter without paste on. Yeah, I do a lot of paste. Well, do you just do? You, I mean, have you got egg in your paste? Is it literally just your boily paste, or do you knock up a specific paste? No, no, still, still have egg in it. Right. Yeah. yeah, I use paste quite a bit in uh, mesh bags as well, which again I don't, don't really 
read or see people doing. No. Another thing I like to put pellet or bits of baiting paste as well. It's not always just a, a straight paste wrap. It'll be a, a loaded paste wrap, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bits of boily or what have you. Yeah. Sometimes a couple of grains of hemp and literally that, just a, just a couple, just, just something extra happening. Mm-hmm. Not many people use paste. I think it's underused. I think people miss a trick with that. Yeah, no, I can see that with our sales. You know, we sell paste. We do, you know, sell a fair bit, but certainly not compared to, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't even like to guess the percentage of angler who has paste with the with the boilie orders. No. Most of it's the river anglers, to be fair. But it's, no, I'd be lost without paste. Mm. Yeah. I tend to trim the hook bait into a fat carrot shape which helps the pace grip on a little bit better but that's about the only difference to do there i use those little paste coils on the hair Never. all right yeah 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 very good i always wrap them around a boilie of sorts to be fair just in case i'm getting the the silver fish pecking away at it too much yeah um, you know, i'm always left with a bait i am one for you know, I don't like to recast if I don't have to. You know, once I'm happy with where something is, I'm, I'm, I'm one that will, you know, leave a bait out for a long while. So I need a bit of peace of mind there. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do much stalking or are you mainly stationary? Yeah. Yeah. I had a, a ridiculously long common uh, just after lockdown on the old eight and a half foot rod and centipede and flow. Oh. Yeah, it was uh, a fish. I didn't actually know it was in the water when I caught it, but amazingly, I caught it the following week as well. It was quite an obscure one, that. See, see that, that I didn't know you were into that, but that's something I would love to talk about. Uh, what I'm talking about is is the, uh, the centre pin. I think earlier you mentioned more traditional tackle. Before yeah. I go on to that, Pete, were you going somewhere with the wind stuff? Sorry to take over, mate. Uh, do you know what? The, 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 last, the last thing I was going to ask was about parasites, Sean. Um, and I didn't know if, if again, I'm just literally going over your experience. And I know you sort of journal and log everything. I don't know if you've really noticed any difference in a fish's sort of behaviour or habits um, when they're sort of like loaded up with parasites. There's certainly a lot more lethargic, uh, particularly with argulus and such like, which you often catch them with in the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, the strange one on. on the most local pits to me, there's there's two lakes side by side. So there's set on the same water table, same Trent water going through them and everything. Yet one of them, the fish always remain active in the winter. It always produce a lot of fish. The other one is a bit of an air bang. You can catch them. But whenever you catch them on the, the more difficult one, they're always really heavily leached up, often argulous on them as well. Yet the, the water next door, which is the same fish, really, they just keep so much more active and they, they've never got anywhere near the amount of leeches on them. And they fight so much harder. Yeah, you know, when they're leached up and, and everything, I find they just tend to chug around a little bit. And, you know, if you was on a hand line, you'd have them straight in. I think yeah. it's only because we mess about with rods that <laughs> don't pull as hard as we think do. But, you know, you get a bit of a scrap from them. Is that is that because of the parasites you think, or is it purely because they've been holding up and lethargic? I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. 
I'm, I'm guessing a lot of it is it's because if you if you sit down long enough, you're a little bit stiff and slow when you get up. Mm-hmm. You know, but if you you know straight in from work, you might be tired, but you're still still active. I mean, it's guesswork that one, but I suppose it makes sense. They're always much more heavily slammed up as well on the the water. That's that little bit more difficult. Yeah, and these are right next door. Yeah, yeah, it's literally, oh, what, 20, uh, 15 yards apart. Right. It's and bizarre. Rise up and, yeah, the rise up and down the same with the river, so, you know, it's all the same water going through it, filtering through. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, just one of those sort of like head scratches. Yeah, yeah. Just brought one to, to mind, actually, just mentioned the river. Um I've noticed on two different waters this season after the the big floods of last winter. Um, I'm I like fishing silt. You know, a lot of people seem hell bent on finding gravel bits and this and the other, and I quite like fishing silt. Two different lakes um, I'm fishing at the moment. Well, pits. Some of the sort of dead cert spots I've had over the years that you eventually find and. You know, sort of little guarantee areas. They've been a waste of time this year, and I'm winding in really stinky, smelly leads. And it's as I don't know what's what went through in the floods. I mean, we we suffered them really bad up this way. I don't know about down your way. And it's as though a lot of the sun poles have have just filled up with, well, something that seems to have killed the bottom. Uh, something I've always done is, is smell leads when I wind in and the bit of braid and everything. So it, it always taints. And to me, good silt, it, it smells like soil. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just finding some really putrid areas now, which were always, you know, the, like I say, the dead cert take spots. So if anyone's struggling on some of the areas they normally catch from, it's uh, perhaps time to start looking for a few new new areas. The, yeah. the lake bottoms have definitely changed around me. Depth's still similar and everything. You know, your features are still there, but uh, there just seems to be some really putrid areas now, which never were before. And you, you're putting that down to the flood water? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've spoke to a, a few people about that, and I'm, I'm getting a similar thing from a few people now as well, once it's been pointed out to them sort of thing. Mm. Um yeah, it's it's not just the water that I'm on. But yeah. if you're fishing waters where you're only getting, you know, a handful of chances a year, it's, it's can take a long while to realise that they're no longer any good. Yeah, for sure. I mean I'm like well, yeah, I mean I've rarely sort of fished silty areas. I'm fishing sort of some um old sort of pits which are very, very deep and it's a lot of margin work. Yeah. Um, I've got to say though, sort of like this, I haven't, I'm thinking back this year, I've really not noticed many putrid sort of silty areas in my lakes at all. So I know whenever I cast into a silty area, I always have a sniff of the lead Mm. and um, very rarely I'm getting any sort of, uh, sort of putrid areas. So maybe I've been on the opposite effect to you. (laughs) Yeah. Was there much flood water go through? I mean, we, we was having torrents going through the pits you know it was, it was all part of the river basically in the end and yeah it was upstream you know there's there's um 
industrial areas and everything else, anything that was on on the ground, is all washed through the through the venues. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think they're probably very, very sort of different in nature. Um, these pits are, and there's certainly a lot of water going through them, unprecedented amounts, really. Last summer, um, last winter. Um, but yeah, there we are. Right, I need to run off and have a wee very quickly. Uh, I Sam. could do the same actually. I just just glanced at the clock as you said your last sentence, thinking I could do with escaping for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have a little pit stop, and then Sam can. Uh, speak to you about the uh, traditional tackle yeah traditional tackle sean is is this something that you're into yeah on and off i enjoy using it um i'm actually sat looking at a couple of richard walker mark fours at the minute um you say a book or a or an actual mark no rods no a couple of cane rods in front of me at the minute now um Sorry, go on, go on. Yeah, I'll go, so I think it starts off really. I mean, when I started fishing, I used, well, I had to use my granddad's tackle because nobody in the family fished or anything. And I got wooden sense pin reels and cane rods anyway. And I think after a lot of years, I, it was just, uh, I touched on it earlier, making things difficult for yourself again. And I basically started revisiting where I'd come from. I get a big kick out of catching them on, on cane. It's got its limitations, but, uh, you know, choose the water right and can have a lot of fun with them. Now, I've always used sand pin reel. I love, love catching carp on sand pins anyway. And, uh, yeah, but I, I'm, not a, I'm not a purist or whatever in, in any means. I'm quite happy having a modern reel on a, a modern sand pin on a cane rod, same as a, I use Grandad's old speedier on carbon rods. So. You know, I'll mix and match and do it for myself. You know, I don't, uh, I've never tried to conform anywhere and just do what feels right. Yeah. So, you're, I mean, you obviously fish with the the Dick Walkers, um, the Mark IVs for, for carp. Yeah. Which which versions are Because obviously there's been quite a few of those, isn't there? Do you know which ones they are? Uh, yeah, I use the B. James. You, you find with most cane rods, you never get two that feel the same anyway, so. Yeah, you can ask somebody what they use. It'll be different to the same one of someone else's. Yeah, it's a, a natural natural materials at the end of the day. They've all got slightly different properties. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think they look nice on the bank. You know, as silly as it is, they just they get a nice feeling when I'm using them. But, right. You know, you are limited where you can use them. You know, it wouldn't be fair on the fish on some of the venues of fish to be using them. No, I think it's the creek as well, and just the the fear. I mean, they're terrible to play fish on. We got to be honest, don't we? Um, but there's something very romantic about having a. a I quite like playing fish on canes. To be fair, I certainly prefer yeah. it to fiberglass. See, I've got a Chapman 500, which is a far lesser rod than the the, the Dick Walker Mark IV, of course. Um, but it's still mm. supposed to be a good a good um, cane rod. Yeah, yeah. Again, it was a very popular rod. A lot yeah. of people still use them. You know, you know, I do talk to quite a lot of traditionalists and mix with a few of them. And yeah, they're popular rods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, and do you, if you did, I know you said sometimes you'll use like a fixed ball reel, but if you did pair that up with a sense pin, what 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 sense pins have you got? I like the speediers. I think because I, I sort of 
inherited my grandfather's speeder. It's it's just a reel I like the looks of, and I've caught a lot of, a lot of nice fish on them. Mm. In fact, I think the the picture on the Sean Harrison Angler Facebook page, if you look at the little picture there and enlarge it, you'll see the speeder on that one. There's Gailey Mirror I'm holding. Oh, okay. I'll have to have a look at that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they're very solid, aren't they, the speedies? I think. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Reels. But, I, you know, I also, I've got quite a lot of centipin reels, to be fair, but I use the Akumas quite a lot as well, which are a very, very reasonable, cheap price centipin. Yeah, my friend it's raves real about Real you can really abuse, you know, and good solid schools on them. But no, yeah. I've got various, I've got aerials and, and all sorts. Oh, yeah, that's a proper centipin, that isn't it? The aerial bit of money there, yeah. But Very nice. you know, like I say, I use what I, you know, what feels right. If if I go chub fishing, I use centipins for most of my normal river fishing, I use centipins for barbel quite a bit, but you know, there'll be different ones on different rods, yeah. Trotting, I think they come into their own, don't they? Yeah, so long as you're not needing to cast too far, you know, a lot of people struggle with them. But lots of the trotting I do nowadays, I use a 15-foot rod for it. And I don't know, I've never seen the need for a fixed ball since I've had the longer rods. You know, you can just yeah. hold them out a lot easier. And yeah. You're more direct contact. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Hmm. Okay. So m moving back on to more modern-day carp angling, um, you've uh i know from from chatting to you earlier that you've fished some some very deep pits uh 30 plus feet as have i actually uh but i haven't had the same findings that you have you when we when we when we had a chat on the phone um right. tell everyone about carp in deep water and um the the color of the carp skin uh, I think what we was talking about earlier on the days I was fishing when I was on the Granville Syndicate, uh, there was quite big areas of the lake there, which were 35 foot deep, which most people tend to, to avoid. Um, most people seem to go out of the comfort zones once they're over 20 odd foot. Uh, Granville, the shallow areas were like 16 foot and some plateaus at 20 odd foot. But this big chunk of the lake was 30 odd foot deep. And I was quite lucky. I, I did well on Grenville. I caught quite a lot of fish there. But I'd, I'd caught a lot of fish between each better fish, if that makes sense. And it was only one day. I was, again, one of these eureka moments. I was, I was sat pondering things. I was looking at a couple of pictures of some big fish, so on a dad. And it suddenly struck me that there was very, very pale. Yeah, a lot of the other Grenville fish at the time was catching quite dark fish. And it suddenly occurred the pale fish, they weren't getting so much light, so they got to be living in the deep water or spending bigger percentages of the time in the deep water. And on the back of that one, I, I started fishing the swims that didn't used to get fish much in, in the 35 foot. And I think the first three trips of doing it, I had 35 pound plus fish each trip, pale looking fish and everything, but there were fish that weren't visiting the areas I always tended to be fishing. You know, if I could find a plateau or a bar in 20, 25 foot, I'd tend to be fishing that rather than the, the deepest. But it's, it's again, as I said earlier on when we had the chat, I've not heard anyone mention that about the, the colour changes. 
Um, one of the big fish on Grenville. I remember a friend of mine, Ron Key, had it, and it was absolute jet black. It was, you know, as dark as they come. And it had obviously spent its summer just living either around the edges of the island or on the plateaus and such like. Uh, I caught it two or three years later, and it was as pale as anything. It, it took us a while to realise it was the same fish. But to just change its habits, it was living in different areas of the lake. And it, I think most people would be amazed just how quickly the colour does change. Like I say, the, the fish in my garden in the winter, it's, jing, it's a natural pool. It's, you know, there's no liner or anything, so it gets quite mucky in the summer with them turning the bottom up, you know, digging away in the silt. And in the summer, if I, if I have a look at them, they're, they're silver when you take them out, you know, they're really wishy-washy. Yeah, winter, the, the jet black again. Yeah, I mean, if <clears throat> even when you first catch a carp, if you then let that carp, you know, relax and, and de-stress in the margin for 10 minutes, it, it darkens up then even. I don't know, I'm sure you've noticed. Yeah, because it's in shallow water, it's getting more light on it. Yeah. Do you think it's the light or do you think it's the stress aspect? No, it's, I'm, I'm convinced it's the light. Like even say, the, the shallower, shallower, clearer waters, the darker the fish normally are. If you've got murky water where they, you know, they're digging away in silt all the time, they're generally quite wishy-washy pale fish. Or the deep water ones are. You generally tell when somebody's showing you the pictures how, how densely stocked the water is that they're fishing as well. You know, if they're sort of quite light-coloured fish, there's a lot of fish in there. Mm. Because they're rooting the bottom up and they're living in the murk a lot of the time. Yeah. If they're showing you you know, really dark fish, everyone's a dark one. There's either very, very weedy, shallow, and they're not able to dig the bottom up, you know, or there's hardly any fish in it. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I'm, I'm on about between five to ten minutes in the edge, recovering in in the uh, the landing net. I'm sure they darken up then. Do you, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, yeah, that's that's probably is a stress thing. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's, I mean, I've never actually <laughs> had one out of the water to see how quickly they turn, but certainly, like, I mean, I've, I think I've used a live bait since the early 80s, but back then when we used to do the bucket trick, you know, they'd, they'd change colour overnight. Yeah, yeah. You know, that'd be roach and chubble or whatever else we were using. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these imported carp are... Um... They're just basically bred in in basically swimming pools or you know extremely large um paddling pools and they're so dark because obviously it's clear water and mm. you know uh, fisheries buy them i mean i don't agree with buying those types of fish anyway so it serves them right but they'll put them in their water and then wonder why they're they're you know pale as anything and it, it's obviously yeah. just because they've overstocked like most of the carp lakes nowadays some murky water and they're just not getting the light penetration and, and they just go you know light as anything yeah yeah it's very yeah, but it certainly i mean I, I mentioned it earlier on and it was a i mean we've, we've really just talked about fish changing color but it actually increased the the average weight of the fish i was catching um you know, realising some of them bigger fish were living in the deep. The smaller ones seem to live where most of the food's going, you know, which makes sense. And most of the anglers, if they could, they'd be fishing in the shallower areas. So that's where the younger growing fish would live in. 
So just to switch gears a little bit, do you, how do I put this? Do when, when you're, when you're tackling a water, do you do certain things that would potentially limit your odds of catching the smaller fish and increase the odds of catching the bigger fish? Is there anything out of the box that perhaps people wouldn't be aware of? Not really. The, the taste preferences change a little bit uh, between ages, but that doesn't always mean big and little, you know. Yeah. Um, no, I think you need to get to know a water to be able to start fathoming them out. You know, you, you need to see fish caught and how they're being caught and start to build the picture that way. Yeah. I think it's, it's difficult just to go blind on a water and, and sort out bigger fish. I do find baits that blend in more and more subtle baits seem to produce a better average of fish. Mm. Um, if you just want the bobbins moving, go in there bright, obvious, and everything else, and you know you, you'll catch the young ones that are darting about, grabbing everything that's going. Uh, dark up bait scenario, or not necessarily dark up bait, a, a sandy colour bait on a sandy bottom. You know, it, it looks yeah. quite a bright bait when you're casting it out, but you know, have a look what they sat on the bottom. If you camouflage your baits, they seem to be less effective for the smaller fish. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, a, a black bait, which we would think is dull, is actually very bright on a very sandy bottom. Yes, stands out like a sore thumb on a lot of waters, yeah. yeah. But I think as fish get older as well, they, they utilise different sensors to, to what they do when they're younger. I'm, I'm sure when they're young, the eye, eyesight is quite an important thing for them. I think that becomes less so as they get older. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask your opinion. I mean, I personally think it's it's that the, the the younger more energetic carp they see it obviously and, and they're they're quicker to it i don't think it's that the bigger fish wouldn't eat the brighter bait do you agree with that do you think it's just they don't get to it first or or do you do you think they're more wary of a brighter bait no i don't think the young ones beat them to it a lot of the time yeah um i think it was kevin clifford wrote years ago in this i think it was kevin on on Redmire. And he was baiting up with jelly tots from memory, or one of the kids' sweets that's all different colours. And he noticed even back then on, on the first baiting that the little fish were grabbing the bright ones and the bigger ones had, had come and mop up what was left, basically. And that's something that's stuck in my head since being a kid, really. I mean, it's always been semi-part of, of how I've thought along things. Yeah, interesting. Always worth ringing the changes and just seeing, you know, fish a bright bait, fish a dull bait. Well, not so much dull, a, a, a bait that's going to blend in. And this is the thing. There are so many variables in angling. Um, you, this is the thing. You, you, can, you can get these ideals in your head and sure, you can, you can have them as go-tos, but ultimately you've got to figure out what is going on on that water. Um, how your yes. the target is feeding, and and you just got yeah, and somebody will always catch one on a on an orange pop up eighteen inches off the bottom. You know, yeah, there'll, yeah, will always be the the exceptions anyway. Hundred mm. percent. Mm. I remember having a a winter session with uh, 
mentioned earlier, Hutch Mark Hutchinson. Um, he lives very close to Drayton, which is just stuffed full of suicidal carp. Yeah. And I'd never fished it before, and I'd, I'd been going through a bit of a tough period, and it sort of had me over for a, for a bit of a social day. And it, it, it everywhere had been froze over for a while, and it thawed on the Thursday, I think it was. He rung me up, he says, do you fancy going to Drayton? It's, it's thawing out. I went on the Saturday, and I think we are 50 doubles between us in the day. You know, it was ridiculous fishing. But I think I only saw three or four of the fish caught all day. And I picked up on it then. I was using one of the baits that don't produce anymore, um, Gurkha Spice. And it was basically a sandy-coloured bait. was its natural colour, it, it turned out. And I've used dime or anything. And Uch was doing well on south. And suddenly occurred to us, we were watching what people were doing, and our baits were, we were both catching on bottom baits straight out of the bag scenario. And they were blending in. You know, it was as, as camouflaged colour as you could have given them, really. And that was midwinter when people think about high flavours and, you know, bright-looking baits and everything. Yeah, you know, I was watching people chucking the bright pop-ups about, and this, that, and the other. And we seemed to be the only ones catching them. Mm. And again, it goes totally against the grain of what you'll read in most winter articles. Yeah, well, I think you can read. <clears throat> Let's say you had this ideal that you wanted to prove right. I mean, someone would have written about it. This is the thing, isn't it? You, you can you can back any of your ideas up with with a, a piece of writing it somewhere along the line. And the mm. thing, it's not just what is being published in the magazines now, is it? It's, it's Google, and there's a whole back catalogue of, 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 you know, writings for the last, I don't know, 10 years or whatever it might be, um, however long it's been going. So, yeah, and I suppose that, that circulates around, but I don't know. I don't know if it – I can't help but thinking that takes away from some anglers' exploration of themselves. You know, you. I think – you got to go out there. You got to test it yourself. You got to look. You got to watch the definitely see what's happening. And I think perhaps a lot of that is being lost in place of oh, let let me Google you know whoever carp superstar. Let's see what they're doing and see what they think. And then it's almost like people don't have to think themselves or draw their own conclusions. I realize no. so I've said for a while. Sorry. No, I was going to say, I know I'm getting, I'm sounding like a, a whingy old man here, but that I can't help but think that. No, I've, I've said for a while now, I, I, it frustrates me a little bit. I don't know where the innovation is going to come from in the end because there's the modern generations, no disrespect over anything because they haven't had to, you know, things have been there for them and you can always ask someone and you, you get the answer. But that was never the case in the past, and that's why there was, I mean, carp fishing, in my eyes, progressed at its biggest rate from probably about 1982-ish to, to 1990, yeah. uh, with the hair rig coming out. But the, the advancements in rigs in just a three-, four-year period was immense compared to what I've seen since. Mm. I think you know, because people don't don't need to innovate now, and I think when you've been at it a while, you stop innovating because you've got your methods that catch, 
you know, it's, I don't do an awful lot of experimenting now because I know I can go out and catch them, you know, I don't want that to sound wrong, but you know, you're not keen and hungry like you are when you're younger, mm. but a lot of the younger ones now, they, they're not needing to do the innovating and things to my mind, you know, I look over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. I've not really seen anything move forward in that time. It's yeah. probably longer than that. Yeah. Not in big leaps like they did in the, you know, in the eighties. Do you think maybe though that in some, in some way it will come full circle in as much as everyone, <laughs> everyone's doing the same thing, aren't they? So, so you're just getting everyone copy the person that's copying the other person everyone's doing the same thing. And then the few people that really are looking at what's going on and, and trying different things and innovating, they're the ones catching. And do you think it'll almost come all the way back around in as much as you've got a few people that really are sort of having it off from, from taking things outside the norm? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. The, you know, those brave enough to do their own thing. I mean, there's some tracking young angles out there now. There is on the local lakes of fish. But I'm, I'm talking on the whole, you know, most just just if they've got a problem, there's an answer for them, you know, yeah. rather than trying to move things totally forward and, and, you know, totally different concepts. It's like rig scenarios. They're just everything's a variation of what we've done, you know, what we've done before. The only difference is really there's different tackle components now, which yeah. just clutter rigs up more. Yeah. Get caught in silkweed, eh? <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> Just makes it more obvious that, you know, there's more armour on the one they need to avoid. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. <clears throat> Pete, you still with us? I am. I'm still here. Um, was there anything else sort of you wanted to sort of bring up or discuss? I'm just trying to read my notes and I can't see. I'm sat with candles on and they're not bright enough. <laughs> it's a bit of a thing I've got, but I enjoy reading. But I can only read in a dark room by candlelight. But it seems I'm getting old now because I can't even read the little scribblings that I read <laughs> to you on the phone earlier. Very Charles Dickens by candlelight, right. <clears throat> yeah well it's all part of me not conforming having spoke to you only a handful of times something that keeps coming up is you saying that you're you don't like to conform you're uh you're not a conformist where does that come from um cart fishing and punk rock came into my life at the same time in 1977 and a lot of the punks now, I was obsessed with it. And a lot of that was the non-confirmation and everything. And I guess it probably just stemmed from there. I've just not wanted to ever fit in. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm probably a bit of an oddball to try and categorise because, you know, like I said earlier, you know, I, don't, I fish traditional ways, I fish ultra-modern ways. You know, I don't do things to, to please other people. I do, do what feels right for me all the time. Yeah. And that goes through everything from the vehicles I've driven over the years to the way I dress to, to whatever. Yeah. You know, I just, I want to be me. That, that is the essence of 
punk, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> there was a B side of one of the Pistols. One was I want to be me. But no, it's, it's very much how it is. How I see it, everyone else is taken, so why try and be them? You know, yeah. that that person's already took. So, like I said, I'm, I'm sure it just stems from the, the punk days. But uh, thinking about, you know, when I was a, a real young nipper and everything, I, I, I just like to like things that other people didn't have, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose back then, carp fishing was a little bit punk in that nature, wasn't it? it, it was That's bit... exactly how I, why I got into it. It was the, the thing that you didn't do. Mm. You know, if you read some of the early books, it was often quoted that life isn't long enough to carp fish. But, you know, the, the biggest problem was finding a water with actually had carp in it or more than half a dozen carp in it. Mm. It's, again, a very different thing nowadays. Carp anglers seem to expect to get some action during a weekend. Yet, would fish all season and hope to catch half a dozen, you know. These fish just didn't, they weren't around. And I'm sure majority of people carp fishing now, there's no way they'd have started carp fishing back in the day. Yeah. It seems to be the fashionable thing now, you know. It's, uh, you know, it's something people do and it's quite a social thing now. Yet, again, it was all totally different. I always sort of make the joke that, a lot of the guys you see on the bank at the time, you wouldn't really want them babysitting for you. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was all oddballs, but I think that's why I got on with a lot of them. You know, if you talk to anyone who's been around, you know, quite a lot of years, you'll get a similar thing. Just the general spezzy angler. It was a real minority character in the sport. You know, there was loads of general pleasure anglers and loads of match anglers. Used to, I mean, I've, I've always lived very close to the River Trent and used to struggle to get on the Trent at the weekend. It just matches for miles and miles and miles. It, uh, it's the opposite scenario now. Just nearly everybody, well, there's not so many spezzy anglers anyway, but loads and loads of carp anglers. Yeah. Is there a particular time in your angling that you look back on the fondest? Mid eighties. Mm. Yeah, right. uh, everything had moved on quite quick. I was, I was very, very fortunate to be early on the hair in my area. I was one of the first ones to use pop ups, and I had quite a few edges, which made carp fishing very, very easy for a while. And it was just, it was great, you know, what it's like if you're successful at something in relative early years you you know you really really like it but uh, no i just loved that period and it was it was all very much like i said earlier the rig advance i'm not really into rigs nowadays but at that time it was all all rigs and bait and we was all inventing things you know you might have had half a dozen different people in different nets that would inventing the same thing but a lot of us came up with what we thought were were new, unique things. But, you know, give a lot of people the same problem, several people are going to fix it. Mm. But no, I love that period. There was still a little bit of naivety as well about it. We, weren't, we didn't know the fish like we do now. You know, there's uh, 
there was still fishing waters thinking there could be a, a really big fish in there. Um, no, they, they were my special times. Yeah, something that um, I know you were looking over your notes for, <clears throat> for questions from, from some of your... Um, your uh followers or subscribers what have you something that we got so many so many questions about and we still do to be honest with you is when you spoke about moon phases yeah people struggled with it a little bit and, and that's probably my fault for not you know prying in enough um but a lot of people a lot of people wanted clarification as to when is a good moon phase to go and catch plentiful amounts of carp and when is a good moon phase to go and catch the bigger carp for for those listeners that that were kind of uh you know angsting about what we said on the last episode can you clarify for them the, the yeah, so, yeah sorry total simplifying it um if you just want to catch as many as possible if you want to bag up when everything's feeding is anywhere from the start of the new moon to the full moon mm -hmm. well to a few days before the full moon uh that to my mind is is the easiest time to catch carp uh once you've got to the full moon then it's dying back down to the new moon starting that's the most difficult time in my opinion yeah um the older fish feed regardless um around the full moon which it's got this thing now that it's a special time for catching big commons and everything else mm. it's one of the worst times to to try and catch carp but again the older ones continue to feed and that's the reason that they tend to slip up on the full moon they're one of the few fish in the, in the water that's feeding if you've got mixed aged fish if you've got a lake full of young fish, I wouldn't bother fishing on the full moon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so you, basically what you're saying, <clears throat> just to put it in layman's terms, people, which, which you did, to be fair, but if the moon is getting bigger and it's relatively small, that is going to equate to more mouths feeding in the lake. Yeah. When the moon yeah. is, is right at the end and it's near its biggest and, you know, let's say two days either side of the full moon, less carp and well less fish really are going to be feeding but the bigger ones the big commons and big mirrors will continue to feed therefore yeah percentages come into play and you're more likely to hook them is that what you're saying basically yeah yeah that's right but uh, it seems to have got a little bit distorted because you know i've, I've sort of spouted about the full moon scenario it is my favorite time for a big fish but it's, it's certainly not the easiest time. But I think people have misinterpreted it into thinking that it's the best time to go fishing and that's when you're going to catch everything. Yeah. It's not. You know, it's a very poor time for catching carp, but the big ones slip up or it, it becomes easier to find, you know, because bigger fish feeding. Yeah. Yeah. But if you've only got two in 80 acres, then you've still got to get everything else right. You know, you still got to get the location right and everything else. Yeah. And it's it's water dependent, isn't it? I mean, me and Pete were on a water. Pete, I don't know if you remember this, but I used to be heavily into the moon phases. I used to do very good on a waning gibbous, which is basically the, the period after the full moon. 
which yeah. would, would fly in the face of you know conventional wisdom about when a, a you know when you're going to catch a lot i used to do well you know sort of i don't know probably a five days after the full, probably a week after the full moon i'll have to look back at my notes now on this particular lake um so that that just flies in the face of 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 what we've just been speaking about so i suppose the ultimate thing is find out what's working on your water and and use this yeah definitely definitely because you know you've always got you know something that goes against the rule anyway you know as i said earlier you you know you get somewhere where orange pop or painting yourself the bottom is is the way you know but it's take it to 20 place and it's not you know all you can do really is just take recordings from where you are mm. you know i'm in fortunate position of having diaries that go back to the 70s and you know there's so many of the better fish i've had have come at times when i'd expect them to come but they still feed every day. So, you know, you're just as likely to catch the biggest fish in the lake, you know, in the peak feeding period as you are on the full moon. Yeah. Yeah. It's just looking at the averages of the fish on the periods that I, I try and work around now. I mean, these days I, I don't feel so so desperate to go and catch a fish, but I'll, I'll try and put the odds on a better one, you know, I'll make the effort when, when the full moon's there but knowing that i'm not going to be catching lots of fish yeah just to connect two points that you made there which you didn't intend to connect i don't think anyway we're talking about biggest fish what maybe commons as well big common big moon you mentioned orange uh, pop-ups have you seen any correlation between commons particularly big commons and orange baits i know that's a bit left field no, I've not, but it's not a colour I use a lot myself, so I wouldn't really notice on my own angling anyway. But no, I've not noticed anything really colour-wise okay. to favour one thing or another. Right. No. I did, I had a a ridiculous season on a, on a reservoir um, where three different times I had 20 fish in a day on a water where few of the anglers had 20 fish in a season and the main thing i did different there i was using the same base mate same same bait but i was mixing it up in six different colors right six individual colors and i was baiting up with equal amounts of each so like the, the old smarty type scenario you know and the color preferences through the day was changing all the time and I'm convinced that it was the, the mixture of the colours and the regular changing of colours that caught me so many fish there. The, the amount of it, I mean, there'll be people listening to this who, who, who know the water and they talk about it now, what I was catching. It was, it was ridiculous fishing on a water where you didn't normally have ridiculous fishing. And it, it's something I've not, <laughs> it's, ridiculous, it's crazy because I've not repeated it on many places since. But it was just basically using exactly the same bait, rolling it in five different colours, baiting up with little and often. I can remember I used to put like three purple out, three red, three brown, three yellow, three whatever. And just kept topping it up every 30 minutes, but changing the hook baits all the time. You get a quick succession of takes on red, then it a good quiet, and start changing the colour over on the rods. Then suddenly you get a quick flurry on another colour. 
but it was never mixed colours, which I find quite obscure, and I can't I can't explain why that would be. But there were different times of the day there was wanting or preferring to pick up a different colour. Yet there wasn't that much bait out there. You think they'd just be eating everything that was given them. What what is that then? What why would the colour preference change so quickly? Don't know. Don't know. I'd say I've I've tried to get my head around that one a lot, and it just doesn't make sense to me. But so many people saw saw what was happening, you know. Yeah. I'd say you know twenty fish in a day three times on a water where a brace of fish was good going. That would drive. I've got a very I've got a very good bait going as well, but I'm. The, the colour scenario was definitely a fact because, like I say, you, you know, you'd purple would be produced and then suddenly orange rod would start kicking off and you'd change another rod to it and it'd be going. Mm. But there were such short periods. <sighs> Things like that really, they they interest me, but they aggravate me. <laughs> it aggravates me to this day because I don't like yeah. that. It just doesn't make sense, but you know, a lot of people saw it during that season. No, I don't doubt it. Yeah. And it was days only fishing. There were locals were able to get away with sneaking nights and things. And still, mm. you know, I was turning up doing it all totally legal and rubbing people's faces, really, <laughs> not intentionally, but, you know. Yeah. yeah. But it's how uh, carp angling is when you get things right. You know, the rigs were obviously bang on at the time. You know, it was probably a different sort of baiting than what they was used to, you know, fishing it like a match angler. Yeah. Constantly trickling it in. Quite a lot of casting, but, but you know, the, the, the colour scenario was just obscure. But you talk to a match angler, you know, they'll be catching on red, they'll change to bronze, maggot, and start catching again, and they'll change to white and start catching again. You know, yeah. the match anglers have done it for years. 100% yeah uh, and we don't tra we don't carry that across into carp angling do we even uh, just just feeding little and often you know building the swim how many carp anglers build a swim I mean most of them probably would look at your cockeyed they wouldn't even know what that is and, um, they would but you look at the the modern match carp angling that carp anglers are doing you know rather than the match anglers and that's, that's very much how a lot of them are doing it you know, and there's some incredible anglers out there on the match side of things now in the match carp scene. And they've learnt the feeding. Do you think? Yeah. The majority of the, you know, the carp anglers that I see, and I'm sure the same as you see, they dump a load in when they get there and they sit and wait. Yeah. You know, there's no no building and no topping up. No. no it's... One of the things I've done this, started doing this last last two years really i've started doing the the baiting in the middle of the night and the two o'clock in the morning scenario and things and that's that's i'm sure put me extra fish on the bank particularly winter time as well where you've you've only got you know you've got longer hours of, of dark than you have daylight yet people tend to only ever put bait out in the daylight and it's amazing how quick i've had the takes after baiting up at two in the morning and midnight and such like so are you setting an alarm to do that because you think it just keeps the fish engaged or what 
No, it, it'll with myself. I'm quite a lazy angler. It'll only be sort of one baiting in the night and things. But uh, it's rare I turn in much before midnight anyway. So it could be a last job before I get my head down. Right. Or if I've been up for the, you know, we're all at an age now where we don't often get all the way through the night without having to get up. I'll, I'll, I'm not talking a lot of bait. I'm not talking about putting five kilo out in the middle of the night. Yeah. It'd just be like one or two baiting missiles, whatever people are using nowadays. I've actually been using the, the air bomb quite a bit this year. You know, the one that sprays your bait. So oh, yeah. Spot on top of the spot. That's yeah. That's quite a big edge on waters when people aren't using them. Do you mean the um the total fishing gear? Yeah. Um, yeah. You put the ring in the back and it basically ejects yeah. the air, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah. You, not, yeah. You know, you you've got a total different. I mean, the, I keep talking about the local water, but most of the water fish. You see people with a spom or a fox scenario these days or sometimes the nash one but they're all got the same situation when they've hit the water they've all got little piles of bait on the bottom people going about the bait spreading in a in a big wide wide angle it, it doesn't you know you've got little clumps of bait it spreads a little bit but it's all very similar scenario with the air bomb you it's just like throwing a, a load of bait out of your hand you've got a nice spread with it you're making the fish move between each bait so the rigs become more effective as well yeah that i mean definitely yeah i think you need movement don't you um the fish need to be moving the more the fish move the, the easier they are to hook simple as that i think yeah, yeah. That, probably a little bit more subtle than a you know a bloody heavy spawn crashing in the water i'd like to think just a little peppering of of boily or pellet or whatever it is you're using is is possibly a little bit more acceptable for the car yeah i'll go back to the stalking scenario and on my early years of carping i was quite lucky to my local at the time the, the water sort of apprenticeship on us as they say a lot of it was eyeball to eyeball stalking and i found there gin clear water you're watching the fish coming along and such like and and dropping on base in front of them all, all visual, no rigs or anything, you're just waiting for them to sort of all bait. But there I found throwing half a dozen lumps of paste at the time it was in didn't spook them as much as throwing them in one at a time. And again, it's that sort of noise, you know, the spread of bait seems to still work and attracting to a lot of places. I know the very, very heavily fish waters, the ones that are flogged to death, and you know, a spawn crashing in is is gonna signal food anyway. But I, I think on some of the, you know, the, the place with a few less fish where the fish are a bit cuter, that that spread and splatter of bait definitely doesn't speak as much as a single one at a time. How hard do you have to hit the clip with those? Depends how big a spread you want. Yeah. And also how high you hit them to the to the spread. You do need to hit them pretty hard. When originally the first one they bought out was quite a large one. And I've got to admit, I, I, I struggled a bit with them at the ranges I was fishing. You, you know, you, you have, have to hit them to open them. But they bought a midi one out. I don't know if it was this year or not. But I've only had the midi size one this year. And those are getting on with great. You know, they're light enough to hit hard. And 
Yeah, the, the only downside, you need to pop a float up to start with just to get your distance. Uh, but once you've got that and you've got it clipped up on, on the local, I mean, my rod's been marked up for, for two different swims. I can catch it the same range and you don't have to alter it. You know, the, obviously, if it's really windy, they're going to go a bit further. But once you've got them sorted, you, they're pretty good. But I like a spread about anyway. I don't want it on a, yeah. on a kitchen table. Mm-hmm. I think for me, you, you can fish in a way that you would do if you were using a throwing stick. Well, the catapult, I've always had more action on the catapult than anything. Yeah. But obviously, you're limited to, to how far you can catapult baits, but with these, you can put them a lot further. Exactly. So Plus, then you'd use a stick, but obviously, if there's bird life sticks, I mean, that. Yeah, you hardly get one to the bottom with a stick. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the other thing that um, people don't seem to have picked up on, they, they're a great tool for relatively close range and small water as well, because you're not, again, you're not doing that crashing in. Yeah. You know, if you've only got to spray the baits 20, 30 yards, it hardly needs to leave the tip ring. Mm. Another yeah. one, you can drift them under a overhang or because they won't open unless they've hit a clipboard. So if you cast them on a line, you can actually pull them back and pull the bait out where you want it, edge it back to a float. Or something I've done on another water is cast one down a bank, go around with another rod, pick the line up, drag it to an overhang and snatch the bait off back and you swim that way. You know, it's all things you, you can't get bait in any other way than that. You'd have to give it a real such versatile little things. Yeah. yeah. And before anyone starts anything, I've paid for mine. I've not had any sent me or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, my order and cash has gone on to them. But no, they're great little tools, but I never see them used. No, that I'm I'm I spoke to Pete about it. I'm very impressed by them. Yeah, that that's that's one of the I wouldn't it, it's not a breakthrough. You can't give it that kind of uh that kind of level of um respect or what have you but i think that there is pretty big in terms of delivering bait i mean not much has really come on in the terms of delivering bait is it the spot was a big thing and it's bloody fantastic but this thing i mean it's got to be the biggest thing since the spawn not as big maybe but um mm. if you know they... how it's how it's displaced and I think it's a, it's a huge thing. Go on, Sean, sorry. Yeah, I, th- I think possibly what's gone wrong for them a little bit, they bought the big one out to start with, the same as Spom did, probably knowing that the midi size would be the big seller, but, you know, they went to cream a few sales to start with. <coughs> and I think a few people who use them probably struggled with them, same as I did. Yeah, you could use them, but you were limited on the range with them, or, or I was, I couldn't hit them hard enough. And... They've just dismissed them, you know. Now there's the smaller ones out there. It's, you know, it's a great little thing. I think if another company had perhaps brought them out, <clears throat> they'd probably be a bit more popular as well. Yeah, possibly. Um, possibly. People are fickle, aren't they? Yeah, and um, they do look a bit fiddly and messy and everything as well. But you know, they, they're doing a different job. You know, again, it's all having something different in the armour. Mm-hmm. And you go to the percentages scenario again, and you know it's another thing that 
I mean, on the local lake, I've not seen anyone else using them. So, you know, it's something I'm doing different to everyone else. Mm. Probably will be doing now, but hey-ho. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me, I've got a bait spoon and I have it um, screwed into a long bank stick. Like a like a like a stick a storm pole that you'd get on the front of your brolly, really. Yeah, yeah, decent decent range of that. Obviously, nowhere near as far uh, as far as that um, spod bomb or whatever the whatever it's called. It's a similar kind of baiting pattern to that. Um, yeah, and the beauty of the the um, cup that you're using is is you've got a line of bait. Yeah, you know, yeah, as yeah, long yeah. as you get the angle right, so your line isn't going along that line. Yeah. You yeah, know, beauty of them is baiting out of your swimmers. You, you're probably aware if you can and bait at an angle. Yeah, yeah, and you can get some fair distance on them as well, and you can get a real nice yeah. bait yeah. if you if you if you're experienced in it. I mean, if you bait up regularly, then you get your hand in real quick. But um, you can be pretty accurate with with a uh, a good a good spoon and a, you know a rigid spoon and um, a long storm pole. Surprising. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I see more and more with the the long poles now and the the cup on the end. But oh, uh, just shipping out. Look out! Yeah, it just seems a lot to carry to me. That does. See, I've not done much. Of, I had a little homemade one years ago. I think Pete's still got. Actually, Pete, you gave it back to me, didn't you? Mm. Think. But uh, Pete, you've got a um, you've got a very long pole, haven't you, for shipping out and and slightly dropping which is totally different to what I was on about with a, a storm pole. And I was on about launching the boilies with the, yeah, yeah. the thing. But no, so, sorry, I was changing the subject. To oh, the, I think, the I think. Pole scenario. Yeah. Pete, you, you do a lot of that, don't you? Uh, I probably don't do it as much as I should, to be honest. Like Sean sort of alluded to, it's, it's a lot of gear to carry, isn't it? Mm. Um, which sort of I, I let myself down a little bit on that front because I like to travel light and I do my short sessions and I don't want to be bringing all sorts of gear with me, but they've certainly, I think, they they can be an edge. You, you, to... you do use it sometimes, don't you? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I do use it. I think it's, yeah, homemade. Um, it works well. Well, you've seen it, haven't you? It, it, it does what, it's, what all the others on the market do. It's quite flexible. Um, but it's not something I use as much as I probably should do. There's a lot of times I think I probably should have brought it, but or I'll devise little plans in certain swims. But by the time I get there on on nightfall, it's just not another thing I want to be sort of um, piecing together. And how long is it? Uh, it is. Oh, dude, I don't know. I've got a probably uh, sixteen meters, maybe. It depends how many sections I wanted to make. Anything above that, it's unmanageable because um, it's too flexible. Mm. If you look back, I mean, probably the most proficient anglers are, are the match anglers, and that's what they're doing all the time, really. Mm -hmm. You know, they're tipping off a pole, aren't they? Yeah, little cut. You know, other than the small waters, you know, where they're fishing little feeder rods for the carbon things, you know, the... the normal method i see everywhere is is poles and a cup and tipping it in you know it's as accurate as it gets see what i don't get inconsistent I, yeah what i don't understand i've got no idea on your stance on this sean but for me 
that seems like you know a perfectly acceptable form of angling having a you know having a long pole and then a um you know a, a bait spoon on the end tipping it out that seems like you know i would class that as as decent angling yet if it was a bait boat that was essentially doing exactly the same thing for whatever reason i wouldn't lock anyone for it everyone you know do what whatever makes you happy but for me i just wouldn't feel like that was quite cricket um and i don't know why i don't know if mm. you thoughts on that sean i've managed to go 43 years without using a bait boat um i don't get my eyes about it i don't like to see them on the lake i'd rather people didn't use them but you know it's a generation we're in now it's people do mm. to me it, it a lot of the things that you practice to get good at is out the window when somebody's got a boat at the side of you and it's i think you can have too many shortcuts yeah <clears throat> i agree what about long think, bait poles i've not really got an issue with that yeah but a, lo a long bait pole isn't going to be going more than i don't know i mean perhaps they do use them really long but you know, you summed it earlier saying that, you know, 16 meter is about as much as you can manage. Mm. You know, I'm sure people can perhaps push to 20 or whatever and, and perhaps more, but it ain't going to be 200 yards, six inches away from an island. You know, it's you're a lot more limited what you can do with a pole. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just find it interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm anti-technology. We had... Uh, on the from, from uh, the deeper sonar on the podcast right and I, I struggle to get on board with technology and carp angling even though i know that's massively hypocritical because i use a bike alarm um you know in a receiver so i i know it, i'm you know really hot and kettle but um i just find it hard to get on board with the technology yeah it's difficult it's very difficult because you can again it's something i i mean they used them on the local lake and they scare the fish mm. you know a great big bloody golf ball going out there and mm. it was a classic one it was i'm not sure if it was last season or the season before i was in the corner of the lake and started getting a bit of activity on the bobbin started getting a few liners fish have moved in and somebody moved in at the side of me once straight away straight to the front of the swim, cast one out, never had to twitch after that, you know, just everything departed on one cast. And what we started getting on the local now as well is, is anglers turning up in the winter and going around the lake, swim, be swim, be swim, until they find something. And generally, they've just stopped the fish from feeding for the rest of the day. You know, they just spooked them all around the lake. Mm. Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100% I suppose they would argue that well you'd do that with a marker float and I guess that would be their argument mm. yeah but you don't tend to go around the whole lake do you and, and you know you've never got a quiet corner to move into once one's been around with one mm. Mm. yeah it's the old fuddy duddy in me it's a, again I don't like I don't like the the easy shortcuts 
No. You know, it's perhaps a mardiness in me because I've had to do it the hard way, the long way around. But, you know, I, I could use any of these things if I wanted, but I've, I've really got no interest in using one. I don't want to use one. But again, hypocritical because I've got no no issues of going out in a normal boat. Yeah. And I've used echo sanders on normal boats. So, you know, it's a very difficult one to argue. So, you know, I don't do. I just, yeah. you know, I still prefer to stand on the bank and cast them. That's and the... not, not be certain if the fish are there or not. I don't really want to know they're not there. Yeah. That's the thing. I don't even think it's you being an old fuddy-duddy. I'm, you know... A fair bit younger than you, I think, in the most respectful way possible. And I'm, I'm... close to sixty than fifty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and it just something doesn't sit right with it. It seems you're taking the soul out of it a little bit. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. You, you've time kind of detaching. You're throwing some technology in there that shouldn't be there. You're detaching yourself from this organic thing that should be you and the fish and the water and. I don't know. Don't know. Yeah. It's like the the drone situation, you know, where they're sending them up to, to look for fish. Again, to me it's it's past the boundary, you know, it, it's mm. you know, they seem to be getting more and more common, but I just I don't wanna see, you know. I want to think I've got it right, even if I haven't. Yeah. I don't want to confirm to myself there's nothing in my swim. But I mean climate tree. You, you know, you climb a decent tall tree and you got the, the sunlight at the right. You, you can see a ridiculous amount into that. I mean, I fish very clear waters. If you fish in a clear water, you know, you can see a, yeah. a tree. You really can. Well, yeah. I used to fish a water called uh, Murphy's in Leicester and your car was as close to you as you wanted it to be. There weren't a lot of climbable trees there, but I just used to stand on the roof of the Land Rover. Yeah. <laughs> I used to find the fish every single trip like that. But to me, that's that's manpower. That's you doing it. It's not relying on, you know, something sending a signal back to your telephone or whatever. Yeah. It's your own eyeballs finding them. 100%. Your own efforts. Yeah. Me and Pete used to do the same thing. We briefly fished a water called Retallic. And I used to drive my little uh, Peugeot... God knows what it was, 205, I think, back then. We used to drive that up to the water's edge, stand on top of that, perfect. And uh, you, know, you find yeah. it, yeah. it just seems a bit more organic, doesn't it? You know? but yeah. There we go. But again, like I say, it's very difficult ones to argue because we all, you know, we've both said, you know, we do things that are similar anyway. You know, yeah. so I'll use a boat. I still try and cast, but I've got no issues basing up from a boat. No, me neither. Yeah. No. I've got no problem rowing my, my my rigs out on a on a big water. I mean that you know what's that all about? It's odd, isn't it? Yeah, it is odd. Yeah, yeah. You know we've we've got to accept that generations coming into it now. It's the norm. You know, it's not it's not something to debate whether they should do it or not. It's what people do, mm. or what a lot of people do. Yeah, you know, sadly, it's it's a different different pastime to what i took up originally yeah yeah um regarding sort of like your time at nash tackle were you involved with any of the sort of the tackle innovation side of things or was it purely bait 
No, there was, there was one or two tackle items that came up with ideas and bantered them about with Kevin and, and they ended up in, in production. Uh, one of the ones was, was Medicarp. Uh, Chris Sun's clinic had, had recently been released and they were sent some to, to try out. I was fishing Baston Fen at the time and I'd landed a fish and its mouth was bleeding a little bit. Uh, it was a very, very snaggy water that was very weedy, so you had to pressure the fish a little bit. And I thought I'd try the Medicarp. And I put some in its mouth and I couldn't really see where it had gone, so I squirted a bit more in. And suddenly the carp went, bomb, it just went ridiculous on the mat and it fetched a scale off. And I thought, well, that's defeating the object a bit, you know, it's... I'm trying to help this fish that ended up causing more damage than before. And I sorted the fish out and I started thinking about it as I tend to do when something's not going right. And this liquid had obviously gone down its throat and irritated it or got on taste buds or whatever, but something had, had sent it crazy. And I thought, well, why is it liquid? You know, surely a gel would be better that you can. You know, you, you know where you're putting it, you can see where you're putting it. And I thought, if you put a dye in it as well, you can really see what you're doing with it then. And then I was, I was also aware, like uh, gas, uh, gas doesn't actually smell. It's, it's given a smell, so you know it's gas. And I thought, it doesn't need a disinfectant. Why don't you put a fruit flavour on it? You know, something nice. And I was bouncing these things about in my head, and I rung Kevin the next day when I got back to work. And I told him what I was thinking about, you know, a, a gel with a colour in it so you can see where you've put it and a, a nicer smell that you don't mind being on your fingers. And he had a chemist working for him at the time. And two days later, the first bottle of Medicarp arrived on me on my desk. So, you know, it was an idea from myself. Obviously, I didn't produce it. I didn't manufacture it or come up with a formula. But, you know, that was the start of one. Mm-hmm. A uh, few other things, Daddy Longlegs chair that nearly every company seems to have now. Yeah. I was actually, I'd, I'd been over to see Kevin and I was, I was fishing on his, on the cops. Was it, I get the cops and the church mixed up. Um, I was on one of his lakes, very cold night and was talking to him and was saying that, you know, carp angling used to be a, a young man's sport, but people are getting on a bit now. I says everybody's still doing these tiny chairs, though, that, you know, some of the older lads struggling to get out of. You thought about doing a bigger chair. And give him his due, he used to act on these things, and the first Daddy Longlegs came out. <coughs> Excuse me. Same night, I mentioned about, I said earlier on about the, the best things to keep you warm is feather or fur, or, you know, wool. And I was talking to him about duck down stuff, you know, the mountaineers whose life's are dependent on on keeping warm and keeping themselves together. They all used duck down stuff and give him his due. It took a little bit longer that one, but he acted on that. And the first down stuff that was available in the tackle trade came from Kevin. Um, probably one that that was a massive one, and sadly, no one benefited the same from uh, the safety clip. I had a fish at Murphy's, which I mentioned earlier, standing on the Land Rover roof. And I'd hooked a fish in the edge, and it took off, and the lead had discharged from the swivel, but it was still on the clip, and it was snagged. And I ended up playing a fish. It, it took loads and loads of line off me. It was one that we used to actually call the animal. 
but <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. Eventually, I've netted this fish with this, the lead stuck all the time. It, it had come free in the end. And at one stage of the fight, I think the lead was in the tip ring and the fish was about a centred yard out. So it, it just wasn't a safety lead thing to me. And after I landed that, again, it was a problem that needed sorting. And I thought about it and I started thinking, well, why does lead need to pop off? If lead's popping off the swivel, it's stopping the lead popping off the peg. You know, it needs to be more fixed than that. So I come up with an idea of a hole in it and tying it in place with sort of pan and half line, just to make it a bit tighter. Or you could alter the braking strain suit. I spoke to Kevin the following day about it. And again, a few days later, I'd got leg clips with holes in and pegs so you could lock them in place. And again, it's another thing that, you know, nearly every company's got one of those. That's, that's yeah, quite an important bit of innovation, really, in, in carp fishing, because everyone uses them. Uh, so that's pretty yeah, cool. I mean, you know, I've got to take my hat off to Kevin, you know, it's it's him who did everything. But, uh, you know, it's the bouncing about of ideas and having somebody you can talk openly to. You know, some things I'd suggest and he'd develop it on a lot further, you know, he'd, he'd make it happen. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of things in the tackle trade that uh, I was quietly behind. But uh, at the time, I just used to get a kick out of seeing it on the shelves and knowing that, you know, I was part responsible for it or had a, had a part in it. You know, it never used to be this scenario of, you know, I want 10% for that or I want a retainer for that or anything else. I was just proud to see the product up there. Um, the one, two bits and bobs with the bait. When Nash first started, Nash Bait first started, um, it teamed up with Rod Hutchinson for a while and Catchem became Catchem 88. Um, it didn't didn't work between them, so split ways. So Kevin decided to start Nash Bates and Rod Hutchinson started Rod Hutchinson, basically. And uh, the Nash Bait range initially was to be just the pick of the best of the Catchem stuff, you know, because it was a massive range, the Catchem range was. And the thing he didn't have was base mixers. <clears throat> and at the time, I was catching a lot of fish on on a base mix made with yellow bird food ingredients and such like. Uh, and he, he basically came to me and asked me if I wanted to go his way rather than Hutchinson's side and put a deal together for me in the days when people didn't get sponsored. And suddenly, I, you know, it was something I couldn't really say no to. You know, he offered to roll the bait for me. I could use what I wanted and this and the other as well as tackle. But the condition of it, he wanted to release the, the base mix that was being used. And, you know, no big deal to me. I think the Monster Pursuit was one of them. I think that was Rob Malin's. Um, there was a strawberry mix. That was one of Kevin's. So all the initial base mixes, there was all, you know, something that, that one or the other of the sponsored angles was, was catching well on. But it was quite nice, the, the Ambro Tracks, that ended up in the range for, for years and years after some of the others had dropped away. Yeah, I've got <clears throat> very fond memories of the uh, Ambro Tracks. Mm. Great, great winter bait. 
Yeah, the strawberry. Great leakage and everything else. Mm. <clears throat> were you involved with the um, the so-called palatins, which were basically flavours on an oil base? No, I've been quite... Uh, I get, when I've got things at work, I'm not one that swaps and changes and tinkers with things a lot. And I think there's only ever... Formula One, which was one of the Nash baits. That's the only bait I can remember catching carp on that hasn't been my own bait. That I haven't put together sort of thing. In the sting oil, I mean, obviously that, that's no longer produced. That's long gone, isn't it? I don't know if they use it or not. I mean, I, I still use the same blend in the Raja Spice that we do in Quest Bakes. Yeah, it's a it's it's a great blend, you know. It always will be used in in one bait or another, you know. Are you are you able to share that blend? I think the answer. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a strange one though. That with um, on the amber tract, and no no actual flavors at all, just the essential oil and, and the base mix. Mm. Um, the eels didn't like it. I mean, eels aren't pests now that they used to be, you know, they're quite endangered. But when I was on Patswell Church Pool, you couldn't actually fish boilies through the summer. You only got a brief period in the colder winter months when you could use boilies because of the eels. Yet they didn't touch that. They didn't like it at all. So it was a massive age that was. I was one of the first people to be able to boilie fish it in the, in the warmer months. Mm. which meant I was one of the few people who could fish more than 25 yards out because people weren't, you know, the people used to talk about spots and things back then, but in reality, you didn't see people using them. So it was all catapulted particles as far as you could catapult them. But no, that was a massive edge at the time. I'd not put the bait together to, to avoid eels. It was just a, a lucky, lucky scenario. They didn't like it. Yeah, yeah. That sting oil was, was something special, wasn't it? I mean, that that at the time, I think that, that did quite well, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, like I said, I still still use it to this day, you know. I've messed about with bait a lot, in, you know, with the bait company and things and looking at different things, but it's it still still remains in in the biggest selling bait we do. Which bait's that? Is that an Roger Spice. Right, okay. Yeah, it's one of the few that's been going since day one as well. You know, we've had to drop various ones off over the years if the sales aren't up there and bring new things out. Mm -hmm. Of course, when you bring something new out, you, you need to make space anyway. But uh, now the Roger Spice is, is, has been there since, like I say, since day one. Was that your first bait or did you have another one before that? Um, I mean, when launched Quest Baits, it was very much on the back of what had, you know, what I knew and what I'd used over the years anyway, things that I knew worked. Mm. Um, the story behind it, it, sort of getting into bait and everything, was quite a weird one. I'd, I'd been at the shop for 25 years, like I say, and I wasn't totally happy in the end. I wasn't settled in the end, and I, I knew I needed to do something else. And all I knew was the tackle trade. You know, I've never been anywhere other than the tackle trade and i'd had various ideas what i perhaps could have done it was one day i was 
I was in the shop and we used to get a lot of insurance claims back then. And this guy had come in and if he'd had all his gear stolen or not is anyone's guess because most of them hadn't. But uh, he's replacing all his gear and I ended up with him and went through and was like, you know, looking at rods. He said, what do you use? And I was using the morphs at the time. I used these. So I have a set of them. And went along to reels and, you know, use SS3000. Have some of them, and it went like that all the way through. And it was quite silly. I could have told him I was using anything, and I'll have, I'll have that. But I said to him at one stage, I "says I hope I never go anywhere where you're fishing because I'm going to end up going in your bivy." You know, just everything he had was what, what I was using, which was a nice compliment. But uh, but then it came to bait, and he said to me, "What do you use?" And I said, "Hmm," and suddenly alarm bells in my head and I thought I can't honestly pick up off the shelf what I use you know because as I said earlier on the Kevin Nash sponsorship I used to roll what I asked him to roll you know or Gary did Gary Bays and I'd always use my own things other than like I say Formula One I did did catch quite a few fish on and I finished serving this customer and to the life of me I wish I could remember who it was it just everything was a blank and a haze after that because it was starting this bait company in my head of selling what I actually use you know what what I can honestly say hand on heart you'll catch fish on that yet out of all the bait we sold at the shop there was well there was none of it to use pick up off the shelf and use so that's that's where quest came from really was suddenly having something that I felt I could offer a bit better than than what else was out there so that's that's integrity integrity in the highest order. So basically, what you're saying is because you couldn't thoroughly answer that man's question, you felt that you needed to go out on a limb, create your own bait company, and sell it to them. Yeah, yeah. It was suddenly to mom. It was the first proper gap had noticed where everyone else wasn't doing it, or in my mind wasn't. You know, I felt as though I could offer a little bit more than was possibly being offered now that's totally unfair to a lot of companies because there's always been some great bait companies out there but i didn't have anything in the shop that i was happy to just pick up and use yeah everything else was you know hooks rods reels line everything i'm totally happy with it all but not bait and that says it all doesn't it the thing is you can you can have the you know the best rod going that's real going, you know, this line that's, you know, super supple and all this, that and the other. If the carp isn't wanting to suck up that bait, everything else is irrelevant, isn't it? Yep, totally. Yeah. But people will spend... But it's still, still the thing people skimp on. Yeah, I was just going to say, they'll spend a bloody fortune on everything but bait. That's where they want to save a, a you know, 50p or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You you won't believe some of the phone calls I get. You know, it's, you know, what's the cheapest you can do me twenty five kilo boilers for? Well, what are you after? Well, cheapest. And they they, I don't know. I really should do a cheap bait just to satisfy them, but it's I can't bring myself to doing it. You can't. <laughs> you should. You shouldn't do. I don't think you should. No. No. No, but that's a little bit history of quest baits as well. I don't don't know if I've 
told that one. I don't think I've said that one before about where it actually originated from. It was good timing at the time as well. Um, there was an opportunity occurred as well with old silent partner scenario, and uh, yeah, yeah, it just it got launched. It happened. Yeah, I mean, you, Quest Bates has stood the test of time. When when was that first incorporated? I went full time on Quest Bates in two thousand and five, so fifteen years ago. Okay, I thought it was earlier than that. No, obviously there was a period setting things up and getting ready to hand me notes because obviously I had to do it on the quiet. You know, I couldn't let anyone know what I was doing or anything. So there was a lot of prep work getting things things in place but uh, now 2005 was when i went full-time on it yeah which by then by that time you were well into your writing weren't you well i started writing in 1987 yeah that was when the first first articles were published Mm. i think i had my first series in 1989 i think it was and I've, I've, I've written lots of different things over the years in quite a few different, different countries as well. Who is yeah, your... But sadly, that, that all changed. That's, uh, it ended up that nobody had got any money to pay anybody and the only way I could get articles published was swapping for adverts, which I never made any secret about it. I used to write for a bit of back pocket money, basically. Mm-hmm. Always declared everything. Everything's always gone through the books and such like, but to me, in the years, the 25 years out at the shop, the only overtime I could do would mean not going fishing. So yeah. that was never going to happen. So I started writing. You yeah. know, it was just a, an extra way of earning a little bit. You know, the tackle trade has never been a trade where you earn lots of money. You know, there's a few exceptions on some of the really big companies. But, uh, yeah, it was a case of the diesel money used to come through the writing. Yeah. Yeah. And sad sign of the times, you know, most of the magazines aren't there anymore. They're not, no. But it seemed to me, sort of looking in, they ended up with, well, what appeared to be happening was you'd get a big company, would buy 16 pages or whatever, and they'd supply their their sponsored anglers as writers. So really they're buying, buying the advertising and supplying the writers. So you end up with a situation where, you got anglers writing rather than writers fishing or <laughs> want of a better way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. And nearly everything seemed to be advertorials in the end or a majority of stuff did. And no, you get quite a disillusion with it really from a scenario of people wanting your stuff to suddenly, well, we'll have it, but we can't pay you. Yeah. It's a different world now for sure, isn't it? I suppose well, everything's online now anyway, isn't it? But, uh, yeah, it's change, it is changing. I think it's changing humans at a core level. I don't want to get too deep on that, but I really think it is. But certainly in the context of, of angling, it is changing the way people angle and the way people learn or, or maybe don't learn how to fish. I think it yeah. changes. I really do. Well, I think the normal thing now, I'm not the same in anything else, you know, it's... You know, if I want to know something, my first protocol is YouTube. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll watch somebody do it, you know, yet we criticise people for that. Mm-hmm. What's but, you know, if I want to go and do a job on the, I don't know, what to do, 
if I want to know how to cut a tree down or whatever, I'll go and watch how you do it. Yeah. Or if I need to do something on the car, I'll go and watch someone do it before I do it. Quick, quickest way to learn is not how to, you know, you read about it. No, it's to watch someone do it firsthand. And in this mm. day and age of, of recorded video, we can go on the internet and it's like having someone next to you do it in, in real life. And that's how you learn the best. By yeah. watching, you know, and, and, and listen, you know, all those senses come in. Well, I'm quite guilty as well. And as when Questplate started, we spent a fortune on on videos, on films when you was using actual TV type cameras, you know, and it's so cheap to do nowadays, yet I hardly do any of it now. Mm. Yeah, it was quite at the forefront. I can remember Pete Castle commented to me once, he had a look at one of the videos, and he just couldn't believe how many views it had had. But it's because we were there early, you know, was there yeah. at the start of it, yet I don't know, I just... It's the way forward, and I probably need to pull my finger out a bit more, but uh, it's never been so easy to do either. Yeah. Pete Castle, is he Is he still... He he was quite in the line at one point, wasn't he? Is he still going? Yeah, yeah, he's still... Um, he still does... I notice on social media, he's doing photography courses and things for anglers. And yeah, he still does a bit of filming and photography about i think i'm not sure exactly what he does do i think he's got something dynamite happening as well right he works there a little bit i think he's got a little bit of a mixed package you know yeah but uh yeah keeps in and crop up everywhere yeah obviously spent quite a lot of time in it with him in the free spirit days you know he did a lot of filming back then yeah well he works at free spirit full time <coughs> oh, excuse me are you still involved with that? Think, yeah, yeah, I have been since day one, since before there was any rods, actually. Yeah, right from the meeting stages and seeing if we thought it could happen. Mm. Yeah, it was uh, set up totally different to, to all the other tackle companies. It was uh, basically Simon Bond, who owns it. He'd spent a lot of years at Shimano, then he spent a few years at Fox. And decided to do it himself in the end, thus the name Free Spirit. Yeah. And to fund it, he, he chose what he considered to be the, I can't remember if it were 10 or 12 shops now, the best ones in the country. And uh, the shops basically bought into it and got it launched. Yeah. I think the, name... the rest is history. Yeah. The That's name... over 20 years ago now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I said, I've been there since day one. Been involved since day one. I still work on a daily basis for him as well in in one of my roles. I think the name personifies the ethos of the company, doesn't it? But it probably personifies, you know, your kind of ethos as well, doesn't it, Sean? Yeah, that's why. I mean, you know, I could have gone various ways when free spirit started i remember the first show we ever did i mean i don't know if you go to the shows at all if you look how big the free spirit stand is now it, it makes me smile every time the first one we did there was myself lee jackson and simon bond mm. we had the smallest table you could have and sort of nine rods there open to be took serious and you know you look at it now and it's it's well it's a very very successful company but again, it's another one of those things I've got a lot of pride in. You know, I've been there since day one, hung in there, which is me altogether. You know, I'm very 
loyal type person on things, but it's, you know, you find the right thing and why would you jump ship, you know? Yeah. Do you have any regrets in your angling life? Um, not travelling more um, when the rigs were still new, you know, when the, a lot of people still weren't on the hair rig and start the bolt rigs. Cot were very easy to catch and I could have had an incredibly <laughs> interesting album if I'd have ventured a bit further afield back in the day. <clears throat> Other regrets are not having decent cameras in the early days. You know, a lot of captures aren't, aren't there to to look back on. But not many regrets, no. No, I've said for a long while now, if I went under a bus tomorrow, I'm proud of most things I've done. Yeah. I've, had, I've done a lot more than a lot of people get to do. Definitely. On that note, I think we, we, should, we should round up. Is there any... Yeah. <laughs> That was very cheesy. Is there any message you'd like to to leave anglers of today? What 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 would what bit of wisdom would you really want to pass on to people? I think more than wisdom, the etiquette is a much more important thing. And one thing I'd, I'd say to lots of people: try and act the same way as you'd want someone next door to you to be acting. You know, I think there's a lot to just catch at any cost and sod everyone else and such like nowadays. And you know, people need to just think about other people a little bit more. I couldn't agree more. Pete, are you still there? Do you want to I'm ask? still I'm still here. <laughs> My glass of whiskey's still here as well, it's hardly touched. Have you drunk much? <laughs> No, no, I've not topped it up, and they're still no. Crikey, no. Yeah. That's probably why I'm choking. <clears throat> I've caught COVID whilst I've been talking. I've not coughed for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I think I've had about three bouts of it tonight. You've definitely got that from Sam, not me. Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, it's got to snuck down the telephone if I have. That's it. I'm sure you're all right, Sean. I hope so. Mm. Well, if I'm not, I said earlier, I've had a good life, so, yeah. Not knocking it. No, no, you're fine. Stop it. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sean, thank you so much for coming on for a part two. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm sure the listeners have. Um, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Mm. Pleasure. Enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs>